he just goes on a tirade against so. <laughs> David Lynch actually made that part of the marketing scheme for Blue Velvet. And I was just like, Sounds two like... more reasons to watch Blue Velvet. Two thumbs down from Roger and Ebert. <laughs> no, from, from Roger Ebert, sorry. No, that was good. I, I like the Roger and Ebert. Yeah. Like they're two different people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's like some Lynchian, like, div- like divine, like evil. Yeah. Um, fuck Roger and fuck Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> Fire walk with me. I was missing the Scooby-Doo reveal when you said that the Predator went, ruh roh He doesn't but, have any, any ruh rows. Oh. But um, Danny Glover does call him Vagina Face. It stars Josh Lucas. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. like it. I actually am a like closet huge fan of Josh Lucas. Well, so. you're out now, buddy. <laughs> Welcome into Film Tank the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everybody, and welcome into episode 46 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman and Nick Cheney and Tucson Egan also here as well. Hello. Howdy. The usual, the usual crew here this week as we're talking about the Quentin Tarantino film, The Hateful Eight. Yeah. I know. It's exciting, right? It, it fir- is. It's our first episode of 2016. Wow. So, that's yeah. true. Man. We talked about how this was going to be our, our last episode of 2015, but we decided... Not to do this episode last week, so yeah. yep, we all made that decision. Hey, <laughs> that's okay though. We're we're moving full steam ahead into 2016, and and that is quite all right. I all think. right, all right, all right. There you go, Matthew McConaughey. That's all right, all right. All right, all right. That is go. an impression that no one's ever tried to do before. So I brought a Matthew McConaughey movie tonight for us to watch after possibly after the movie. Really? Yeah. Have you seen Killer Joe? No. Oh, well, everybody who's listening to this should watch Killer Joe once in their life because yeah. uh, you'll either be extremely angry that you did or you'll thank me later. <laughs> well, maybe we'll watch that and talk about it on a future episode yeah. in, in a week in review at some point. Speaking of a week in review, let's have one of those right now. Hey. Yeah. As, uh, I'm not prepared. <laughs> I don't think we've had one in, in at least a, a few episodes and... Uh, with this past winter break, I, I know at least uh, myself, I've had a lot of opportunities finally to sit down and actually watch some films I've been meaning to watch or watch films that I was, wasn't meaning to watch. And I just kept on watching them for some reason. <laughs> uh, so we uh, have some time here to talk about that. Who wants to go first? I do. Oh, well, I guess that was not that big of a surprise, but go ahead, Nick. Surprise. Okay, <laughs> so let's see. Um, I've, I've watched quite a few films since... No one is doubting what you're saying That's right, right. Um, One movie I saw that was in the theater that we did not do an episode on, and I feel I should go mention, but I also... There's a good chance I might talk about it on a future 2015 retrospective episode, mm. so I won't say too much about it. But the more I think about it, the more I really love it, which is I saw The Big Short, okay. oh. Adam McKay's uh, movie about the uh, economic collapse of the housing market. And um, holy shit, you guys. I mean, it's not that, you know, 
anybody's unfamiliar with the story, but I doubt that anybody truly, unless you were a person on Wall Street or, uh, you know, one of the investors, uh, I, I doubt that you were completely aware of all the nuances and just... The, How foobar the, it was? Yeah, the, the subtle fuck yous uh, every step of the way that just blew my mind. And this is a movie that, like, one thing I look for in a movie, and this certainly had it, and maybe it's almost a cheat to say that it had it because it's based on real life, but I love when a movie makes me angry. Like, not makes me angry that I watched it, but, like, either I just get so impassionately angry at a character or at, like, you know, like, life's unfair because something didn't work out the way for somebody in the movie or something like that. But, of course, this is much more of a just made me angry to to live in this world where this was perpetrated these people exist yes and it's it's like the scariest movie of 2015 and and i think one of the reasons before i move on to another movie but one of the reasons why it's having such a weird impact on me is because i think the scariest thing about this movie is that it's not going to make a single difference at all like we're all going to see it at some point probably and we're all going to watch it and get angry about it and then the day will go on and then they'll keep doing it and whatever. And I think that's like the saddest thing about the entire movie is that like we can have this kind of evidence, this kind of, you know, artifacts sitting right in front of us showing us injustice in the world. And yet at the end of the day, we also don't want to confront it at the same now, time. I have not seen this film yeah. yet and I've, I've wanted to, but it might be one that I don't get to until it comes out on, on home video some, yeah. somehow. Uh, so when you say you're angry and it, it's making you not angry necessarily at the movie or anything like right, that, but angry right. at the movie of, should have been made. Right. Um, now are you angry at the events that are happening around the main characters in the film? Or are you angry at the action that the main characters are doing in the film? I would say all around. I, I think this is a movie that damns every single person associated with, uh, the, the housing market and from the real estate agents to the loan uh, advisors to the to the Wall Street bankers that got bonuses after the bailouts to just every single but aspect. in terms of the action that Christian Bale and his crew are are doing in this film are you angry at them for kind of taking advantage of it? that's or, another or, thing and I think all three of them because there's Christian Bale's character uh, Stephen Steve Carell's character and Ryan Gosling's character are the kind of the three main principal players mm -hmm. as as to who had the biggest stake and Brad Pitt and his beard are there somehow. Yeah, he he's definitely there, and he's a great part too. Yeah. But it's those three are the kind of leading this crusade, so to speak. Okay, all on their own different avenues, and they all three, and that's kind of one reason why I did love the movie. All three represent a different. I would say standpoint on the moral spectrum as to what they're doing. Like Ryan Gosling, the character is a person who is completely amoral and he doesn't care what he's doing. He's just a whatever. Steve Carell is more of the tortured soul, like. On the one hand, it's like he he knows that he's being just like everybody else if if he's damning the system, but then also taking advantage of it. On the other hand, he also does think that well, if they can do it, why not? Why shouldn't we do it to them? You know what I mean? So I feel like he's more tortured, and he also has a tragic backstory too, which okay. is ripped straight from you know that person's real life. Hmm. And, uh, and then you have. Um, Christian Bale's character, who is also very good in it, and I'm not. I was going to say, wow, this is like a big moment for you, Nick, because you pretty much hate Christian Bale. So. Yeah, I'm not yeah. a big fan of Christian Bale, and the reason why his character worked was two things. One, he's the only character that doesn't really interact with everybody else, like he's in his own world, so he kind of got sidelined, so to speak, even though he's a major part of it. And two, I, you know, I didn't think he was overacting. Like I don't know, I just uh, for some reason here, whatever, it, it it worked for me, and and um. 
And why I say that he represents the opposite end of the spectrum than, say, like Ryan Gosling's character is it's clear that, and I did check it too on, on the internet, um, both his character and the person that he's portraying has Asperger's and um, just the way he tackles going about this is way more of like an analytical, logical, like, okay. you know what I mean? So it's almost like he's got his own thing going on that doesn't make him seem like a villain either. But he also realizes what he's doing and is much more self-aware of it than probably everybody else. So it it, it calls into a lot of uh, things, uh, calls a lot of things into question as Moral to what's, gray areas. what's right and what's wrong and uh, and who got away with it all and who didn't. And, hmm. uh, okay. um, and I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was fascinating. And I definitely – I think the one criticism a lot of people are going to place on it is that – it is too pandering to a mainstream audience, but uh, to that I say, really, did you actually watch the movie? Because there's still, like, there are scenes where, like, uh, Ryan Gosling's character narrates the film, kind of, and he does, like, a Ferris Bueller, you know, talk to the camera, kind of Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. Ferris you know? Bueller would be behind the housing market crisis. <laughs> he would be, yeah. Dick. And so he does that kind of thing, but then he also, it, it takes the opposite route that Wolf of Wall Street does, which is... Leonardo, every time those things came up, he goes, blah, 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 blah. We made a shit ton of money and, you know, like whatever. And that's more influenced by that kind of attitude. This is the exact opposite where Ryan Gosling goes, all right, you're going to need to know this, but I don't know how I'm going to teach you this. So here's Margot Robbie in a bathtub explaining CDOs to you. And, and it actually cuts to that as she explains what a CDO is, you know, whatever. So it uses celebrity cameos to both pander to the audience huh. and also – get into the nitty-gritty of what they're talking about. And I actually appreciated that because, A, I don't know what a CDO is, or I didn't before I saw this movie. And B, this whole like marriage of fact and fiction, uh, and fiction uh, was, I, for me, one of the most fascinating parts of it. I feel like that was something I've actually heard a lot of people talking about as a positive of the film. As you're saying, is people, some people have a complaint, which is Yeah, I guess, a lot of fine. critics say that they didn't really go for that because they thought it was a little too... I don't know, easy of a joke or something. On the nose. I guess, but I've heard a lot of people, and this is just mainstream people who just happened to go see the film, saying that they liked how at the end of the film they were able to understand the language that was being said in the film and that they wouldn't have had that if it wasn't being explained to them. Oh, no, for sure. And not only that, but after seeing it once, I still want to see it again already because I still don't understand it exactly. I mean, Hmm. they go out of their way to make sure you get the gist, but it's still uh, an incredibly dense situation because it it had to be because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to get away with it. You know, So I totally recommend it for anybody, whether you have absolutely no interest in you know this story or you have a lot of interest because it totally works on both fields so it was a blast right on um so really quickly i'm gonna go through um i watched three movies from last year 2015 uh, uh that are all on netflix so if anybody likes what i have to say about any of them you go ahead and see um i'm gonna talk about them in the order that i preferred them so the first one will be uh girlhood which was a french film uh it actually did come out around the same time as boyhood because there was a lot of uh it was a world premiere but it didn't commercially come out until 2015 yeah. um which is uh about a a black young adult in uh france uh like coming into it's, i wouldn't say it's coming of age because it's a really really small in scope of a of a snapshot of that person's young life um but uh but it was it was not as good as I thought it was going to be. There was a lot of hype around it, and I thought the first hour was pretty excellent. Um, it really got into, like, 
I don't know. There, maybe this is kind of my kind of movie, but it was less focused on the plot and the the narrative tropes of coming of age genre, and more just about a girl trying to find herself. And there was one scene that was simply sublime when her and her three new friends, that she's still kind of getting acclimated to being in this group of friends, that I just thought perfectly encapsulated that moment when you know you're friends with somebody. You know, like it's it's like when you're stuck in between that like oh, am I even still friends with this person because I've hung out with them a few times, but also, like, not quite at that level where it's like, oh, yeah, they're an old friend. But, like, when you reach that, like, peak of, like, this is it, this is the beginning of something, you know, or yeah. uh, where the the four girls are dancing to a Rihanna song in a hotel after they've kind of, like, escaped from society, so to speak, because they all kind of, like, don't tell their parents where they're going and whatnot. And just that scene, it's just them dancing. It it, it tells a story within that because it's it's telling which girls enter the frame of the camera at which order and then which, you know, like, it's just a great, great little snippet. And hmm. I don't know about the movie ever got as good as that moment because then it started to veer into territory that was a little too... I don't know, idiosyncratic, like crime gets involved and stuff like that, which is compelling on its own right, but I, I was way more into the more universal story that the first half told. So that was Girlhood uh, as a foreign language film. If you don't like foreign language, then don't watch it. <laughs> um, another movie I saw was 2015, The Men. I had been hearing a lot about this. Did you re- say The Men or The, the Mend? The Mend. Like, okay. I'm on The Mend. Oh, okay. I'm mending something. <clears throat> Correct. Um, I've been hearing a lot about this recently because it was just added to Netflix. Um, it stars Josh Lucas. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, a, I actually am a like closet huge fan of Josh Lucas. Well, so. you're out now, buddy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and yes, and it stars Josh Lucas, which also kind of had me intrigued because I've never had a problem with him, but I also was you know, quite intrigued by a movie that was getting quite a lot of praise, you know, for Josh Lucas' performance. And uh, and so it stars Josh Lucas and the other guy who I'm unfamiliar with, and I'll start looking it up while I talk about it, um, as two brothers who are both in very different places in their life, so okay. to speak. Um, Josh Lucas is the more, like completely aimless doesn't have a doesn't have a resident address or anywhere you know like it just kind of goes from wherever he, like a like a lewin davis type character where he's a freeloader or whatever um and the other brother uh is more of a he's about to get engaged he's got his own apartment got a job whatever uh, but they both have their own issues and the movie itself i would say plot wise doesn't really do anything crazy original where i haven't quite seen it before but it is edited uh, in such a way that I could not stop looking at it and, and watching it and actually getting quite engrossed with these characters because it's almost like this surreal nightmare of dysfunction and like depression and rage. Like I, I really, the, the score to it is startlingly original for something that's just like an independent movie. Um, so I really dug that. Um, and the, the two performances between the two brothers, it's, I mean, I have a brother and it's just me and him. And so as somebody who has that, you know, and I'm sure other people have siblings can totally even if you're not quite like one or the other character this the dynamic between them where they're both like estranged and yet intimate at the same time it just completely rang true um so that i, I really had a lot of fun with that um it's a movie that de- definitely doesn't have like a clear character arc because it's way more of like a full circle like the status quo can never be changed because these characters are stuck in a pattern that they can't get out of. But uh, I really, really enjoyed it. So that was The Men. And then the last movie I'll quickly mention is um, I finally got to see, which is also now on Netflix, um, 
Alex Ross Perry's follow-up to Listen Up, Philip, which was one of my favorite films of last year, called Queen of Earth. Oh, I didn't yes. mean to see that. I saw the, the trailer for it where it's like, Queen of Earth. I did, actually have never saw the trailer, nor did I read too much about it, so I was kind of taken aback by what it was about. It stars Elizabeth Moth and um, Catherine Watterson from oh. uh, from Inherent Vice. She's been popping up a little more lately. She really has. And this was actually a, like a meaty role for her. Like, mm. you know, and in both Steve Jobs and Inherent Vice, she was kind of a supporting player where she didn't really have her own character. I mean, she did, but she didn't, you know. Whereas this is like, it's it, it's essentially Elizabeth Moss' character and Catherine Watterson's character are... Um, Cat and Ginny are their names. I think Catherine and Virginia, um, and they go together to like a secluded kind of cabin, and it's um, out in the woods somewhere. And like the setup is like a horror film because it's like it, it's, it's the the editing, the score. You know, it's um, it all looks like something's going to snap at any point because it's just this tranquility of the nature just does not fit well with the just really disturbing issues that both women are suffering from, whether it's uh, depression or um, closeted rage and uh, maybe even murderous thoughts. <laughs> like, no, just like that briefly comes out too, whatever. Like I could smash your head right now. Nobody would know about it. That's, yeah, that the, yeah. Yes, because that's a line from the movie where she said that to someone. And then it cuts to another scene. And we never see that character again. And so that's not like a spoiler because it's just a make of yeah. a But it's like, did that person just kill that person? And, yeah. You know, whatever. And there, it's, it's essentially, I would say, a blank slate of like emotional specificity because what's happening on screen we don't have a lot of context for but it's very specific like these two characters have such rich backstories that we don't always get to know every detail about and yet they're also playing out their current uh you know rapport with each other based on that kind of stuff so we can really if you like that sort of thing read into a lot of these things whether we think that one person wronged the other or vice versa and kind of start circling back to like you know what was the original sin of this friendship and where it went wrong and i i just thought it was fascinating the the whole horror movie tone mixed with this like very claustrophobic uh almost domestic drama between these two women was just fascinating. It really reminded me of things like uh, Ingrid, uh, Bern- Ingrid, Ingmar Bergman's uh, Persona or uh, Robert Altman's Three Women, which are two of my favorite films of all time. Hmm. So I really recommend Queen of Earth. Um, oh, and of course, as a film nerd, and <laughs> it was shot in 16mm film, which, oh, okay. oh my God. Ah, uh, just I love it. It's just such lush colors, and it really does capture the, like the the nature of the of the the, the setting. It was just oh god, it looked gorgeous. I, I love that. So anyway, that was Queen of Earth, and that was my, my favorite one of what I had seen this weekend. That was fantastic. Cool. So. Good stuff. Nice. Moving moving on to the sun, I think. Right? Yeah, okay? I watched um, three films recently. One of which was a well, two of them were actually Christmas presents. <laughs> so I want to start with the first one. Did um, you get Christmas vacation? No, I didn't get uh, Christmas vacation. It's like so to preface this, um <clears throat> I was talking with uh um some other friends about like how I wanted my twenty sixteen resolution to basically expand my palette of David Lynch like media. And for a Secret Santa thing, they sent me a copy of his film uh Blue Velvet, which yeah. I had never seen before. 
I didn't even know about it before. You didn't even know about it. I didn't even oh. know about it. Yeah. Hmm. And I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I am I am now almost like entirely on like the the David Lynch like fan train. Well, then let me show you Lost Highway. <laughs> I know. I'm looking forward to Lost Highway. No, I think every project he does has value to it. It's just a yeah. matter of whether it's successful or not. Yeah. The um what what really stuck out with me was just like this was a film that I think came out before Twin Peaks yeah. and like it's it's so bizarre to see Kyle McClellan like like Special Agent Dale Cooper before he's Special Agent Dale Cooper because he has the same mannerisms, he has the same type of intonation, and he pretty much has the same type of like character archetype. It was like this kind of like a this mom and apple pie like good old American boy who's just kind of like in the middle of a mystery, which I also really enjoy. Which is like a line that he says like I'm in the middle of a mystery, which is exactly. In the middle of the two-hour running time of that film, which I thought was in- incredible. Can I can I just cut you off really quickly? Yeah. Because I, I absolutely love that all the characters that I think of with, with uh, him, mm-hmm. which is um, in, in that film, uh, Mulholland Drive, right? Yep. Uh, he's in Twin Peaks as well. And I also think of him in uh, Showgirls, the, the film, too. Wait, are you saying he's in Mulholland Drive? Because he's not in Mulholland Drive. Oh, yeah. I thought no. you were talking about like... Uh, he's the mayor in Portlandia. Yes, okay. but that's not a David Lynch project. I know, but still, like, <laughs> no, he's, he's not actually. In he's not in that. Long, okay, sorry. but anyways, I, yes. I think of him in all these kind of weird kind of roles, and then I remember that he's the uh, villain in the Flintstones movie with John Goodman. <laughs> wow. and I, yeah, yeah. I just like I, that just Tim makes me Halle smile. And, that's yeah. a callback. I know because it seems so out of place for him to be in that film as even as the villain. I just I can't I just can't get over like. The the vision now of him wearing the like Fred Flintstone dress with the the, the bone tie. necklace or yeah the big yeah. tie <laughs> yeah the, he's one of those actors that I think gives great performances but like barely anybody knows how to use him or <laughs> what they should use him for and David Lynch is one of the only people that's really tapped into that well he should have figured that out on Mulholland Drive I guess because <laughs> apparently should've. I thought he was in there uh, I don't think he is I mean, uh, maybe just, I was getting no, because maybe just, I was getting him um, Justin Thoreau him and Justin Thoreau confused yeah. yeah. Sorry, Tucson. But he'll Please be back. Continue. No problem. Peaks. Yeah. I thought that Isabella Rosalina, uh, who played uh, Dorothy Valens, like the main – she's not even a femme fatale. Like this is supposed to be like a – it's supposed to be a noir, but it kind of like redefines some of the boundaries of noir. But it plays out like, almost the, along the exact same beats. It's like suburban horror noir. Yeah. It's, it's like right along with like the, de- the definition of what lynching is supposed to be, which I kind of looked up. It's like um, – it's kind of got this kind of idyllic exterior with like a macabre center and kind of like how it's not that these two things are coexisting, but rather that they are inseparable parts of one another. Like, yeah. Well, the, the, the main title sequence in Blue Velvet might mm-hmm. be the most lynching thing, which is all these uh, images of like a, a simple Americana pastime. And I was like, like oh, shit. Lawn, the hit, but like the, 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 the insects behind – or not behind, but like underneath the grass that mm-hmm. they're mowing and that kind of like – it's just beneath the surface and only he's able to look you know past it all to see it. Yeah. Uh, apparently, this was like one of the films that helped to reinvigorate uh, Dennis Hopper's like – film career thank and god because we never would have got him as uh, king koopa in super mario brothers don't talk about that <laughs> to me ever again i'm so dead serious right now anyway dennis hopper uh don't uh dennis hopper i thought was me. absolutely terrific in this in this film and i love like his his one little uh quote that he has from the film where he's like basically he's seen uh 
Kyle's like character with Dorothy, and he basically takes him out on a nine on the town sort of, but it's actually not. He's, he's pretty much going to like rough him up, mm-hmm. and he takes him to a bar, and it says, "This is it," and he's just like, "What kind of beer are you? Into? What yeah. kind of beer do you like?" It's like Heineken. Heineken. Fuck that shit. Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's just like it. It's like, did somebody pay David Lynch to like put in a Pabst Blue Ribbon like commercial in the middle of this? I don't know. I have two questions for I'll you. I'll fuck everything that moves. <laughs> so, oh, was that you or was that Dennis Hopper? That was Dennis Hopper. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I thought we were checking gears. Oh, fuck you. Uh, I have two questions, though, for you based off yeah. watching it. A, do you like, I'm just curious, just off initial reactions, which do you prefer, Mulholland Drive or Blue Velvet as a... See, I think that um, – Or are they tied? You can say that. I'm, I'm I mean I'm, I'm still trying to weigh that out because I think that the one thing that leapt out to me the most in watching Blue Velvet was that it's the most conspicuously absent of a, of a malicious supernatural presence and that it plays it mostly straight with the exception of a couple of like quick edits and like – hallucinatory effects that are supposed to like symbolize like Dorothy's like internal drama and her own like repressed like like um sexual abuse and other things like that. Um I mean I gave I I, I gave without gave both with, the same rating from what I saw. Exactly. I gave uh Mulholland Drive a very glowing score, not because I thought it was a, a perfect viewing, but I felt like that was a film that's going to breathe and build and i'm going to get so much out of that film like coming back to it i gave blue velvet like the same relative score because i just think that it's a well-made film and that it's worthy of being studied in the context of of the time of which it was actually released so Um, yeah so one more quick question because i'm just curious and it always comes up in conversation the blue velvet did you watch or read roger ebert's review no i did not so, so do you know about it? I don't know. That's one about of his it. most infamous, like zero star review. Really? Where he hated it. Um, he called it. Uh, okay, Tripe. Tripe. <laughs> no, it's, he he thought it was like it made him physically uncomfortable because of. Uh, this is where he got into like he thought it was like unfair to Isabel Rossellini's character, or mm-hmm. not to character, but to her as an actress to make her do that just for the sake of. David Lynch's art, uh, like specifically some of the scenes where she's like naked and like yelling and kind of being. I, I, it's been a while since I've seen Blue like, Velvet, like the, but the, like debase as a human being. You mean like where there's the? I, I don't. I don't want to spoil anything, but like when uh, Kyle and his girlfriend, for lack of a better word, they get back from the the dance, they're being roughed up by like her supposed like ex boyfriend, and then Isabella's character is like on the porch. And you're like, holy shit. Yes, that. We need to get her inside. We need to get her a towel. We need to figure right, out right. what the fuck's going on. Yeah, you cited that scene. And, yeah. and he just said none of it. It was just one of his infamous, like, this is awful. And yeah. this is why I hate people. It is, it is so. awful. And that's the point. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. yeah. It's fine. He also hated Chloe Grace Moretz and Kick-Ass, too. So. Mm. He did. I don't know that Kick-Ass is a movie worth defending, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, I know a couple people who would. That's right. I yeah. enjoy the first Kick-Ass. The second one, not so much. I'm just saying, defending but... is like, no, this is art, Roger. Oh, no. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, whereas, nah. like, Blue Velvet, at nah. least, in my opinion, has that. And I'm not even a big Blue Velvet fan, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but I certainly don't hate it or anything like that. So I was just curious. If you... there, there's a bonus feature on the, uh, if you have the Blu-ray. Or... I do. Yeah. There's 20th. a bonus feature yeah. on the Blu-ray where you can watch the original at the movies clip where he just goes on a tirade against so... <laughs> I think I... 
No, I think like remembering back on that, that David Lynch actually made that part of the marketing scheme for Blue Velvet, and I was just like, Sounds two like... more reasons to watch Blue Velvet. Two thumbs down from Roger and Ebert. That's that's Roger, about right. No, yeah, no from from Roger Ebert. Sorry, no, that was good. I, I like the Roger and Ebert. Yeah, like they're two different people. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like some Lynchian, like div- like divine, like evil. Yeah. Um, fuck Roger and fuck Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> Fire walk with me. Uh, so <laughs> the next film that I watched was actually a gift um, from my film tank co-host. And I decided to watch it for the first time. I watched uh, Predator 2 oh. with uh, Donald Glover. So you've and seen the first one though, right? I've seen the first one. I just want to make sure you weren't lost if you watched the second one. I'm not lost. Okay, good. I, yeah, you know that I saw the first one. We're gonna now. Wa- now that's Danny Glover, not Dan- Donald Glover. Danny right? Glover. Yeah, I was gonna say Donald Glover. I don't think would have been old enough for that film. Yeah, probably. Donald Glover would be Charles Gambino. I'm sorry about that. I mis- mixed them up all the time. That's totally fine. Yeah. Racist. Um, fuck you. They have the same last name. Anyway, um, and the same skin color. Man, that movie is. Bad. Yes, it is. It is a really I'm so glad to hear that. It is because I gave that to him. It is a really bad movie, and it's some some parts. It's actually like guiltily like enjoyable. Like watching Danny Glover's like sweaty face just panting around and like look darting back and just like pointing his gun recklessly at anything. Gary Busey in the, is in this movie, and he is surprisingly oh, yeah. he is surprisingly cogent because I think this like took place before his tragic motorcycle accident, and yeah. so it was uncanny seeing him. Oh, he he like he used to yeah good. I mean the Buddy Holly story that's yeah. a pretty decent performance, and uh, yeah no that the motorcycle accident is certainly what made him uh, Gary Busey. It as, was as we know it today. <laughs> I want to make a Doctor Chuckle Mister Hyde like joke about Gary Busey. There's Gary Busey. It's like was there was a Gary Busey and there's the Gary Busey. It's, yeah. it's there's Gary Busey and then there's Gary Busey who is on Entourage who everyone thinks he is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's there's Gary now, Busey. Tur- now Turtle, I want you to look at this and I want you to see this statue. This is what life means. <laughs> yeah, there's there's that, and then there's Gary Busey that was uh, taken in the d- departure and the leftovers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was it was what was it like the Pope? Yeah, and the Gary Pope Busey. and Gary Busey. I, I, I get just, the Pope, oh, man, but that, Gary Busey. That that warms my heart to think that they're maybe hanging out in the leftovers universe. Yeah, it was it was um, it was interesting seeing Adam Baldwin in in that role as well, like as a support to Gary Busey's Another character. Another crazy person. Yeah, he's he's a, that's a different kind of crazy. Yeah, it's a different kind of crazy. A, yeah, I, I mean, I like... Excusable kind I like, of crazy. I like Jane from Firefly, but I just, I don't like Adam Baldwin. He was okay in this. But what I thought was interesting about this film is that it is directly responsible for so much good and so much awful that has spawned out of the Predator, like, like <laughs> franchise. Like... This is the first time that we see the connective tissue between Alien and Predator. Oh. When you see the actual like trophy wall in the uh, in the Alien spaceship, you actually see all these skulls, and then you see, holy shit, is that a Xenomorph skull so right then, over there? Cause, so I, because I genuinely don't know, was was that done on purpose, or was it supposed to be like an Easter egg? I think it was supposed to be an Easter egg that okay. then evolved into, into uh, what we know it now at, as and AVP. I don't want to talk about that. Um, the the um, the CGI was terrible, and there, there's this one part where I, I want to. I'm just going to call the predator Jerry the Predator, where he gets his arm. What like, is the deal with Predator? Yeah, what is the deal with Predator? It's like he gets his uh, arm like cut off, and he is basically just vaulted into a um, 
into an, an apartment bathroom, and he basically has like this uh, this makeshift uh, field kit that he uses to solder and cauterize his uh, his this wounds. Is the predator itself. The predator itself. Yeah, he uses like a blue flame and like takes like some tiles and stuff and burns it and just like goops it over his arm and stuff like that. And the predator was supposed to be like an alien. I genuinely have never seen a single second Any, of anyway, anything. anyway, and it, this this scene <laughs> is actually played. Look how angry he got at you. He didn't know this scene is played for com- comedic effect because there's actually like a like a woman with like hair curls and everything. It's like <laughs> like Frank. I think there's somebody in the bathroom. She gets a broom and it like cuts back and forth between um, Danny Glover like trying to sidle down this uh, this pipe in order to like get at the predator and kill him. The predator, like trying to like goop this stuff on his arm, and this woman, like with a with a broom, just itching towards the bathroom. And eventually, the predator just like gets fed up, punches his way through the 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 door, runs past the woman, and it's like one shot. And she's like, ah! and and basically wow. he 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 stops in front of the door and just yells at, it, and then he just like punches through like this 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 graham cracker strong door and just stomps out and then danny glover is is just like which way did he go i don't know dumbass which way do you think he went this i can't movie's... do it with this shit rig this movie is so fucking stupid oh, and there's listeners one... i'm sorry i have to interrupt you and i just want to say you are welcome for accidentally creating the sequel to tucson's first predator rant when he summed up the uh, the first movie because oh, that my... was just as good oh, although it was missing the scooby-doo reveal when you said that the predator went rot raw, he doesn't but, have any any rot rows. Oh. But um, Danny Glover does call him vagina face, which I thought was really kind of <laughs> weird. And I'm just like, I get, I get. Had he never seen a vagina before? I, dude, don't even, don't even. Too bad the predator didn't uh, accidentally arrive in like the bathroom from Howard the Duck when there was like a duck just topless sitting in the bathtub. That would have made it. That would have been a immaculate. much better scene. It would have been so cool. Like the um, the one cool part that I actually did like about the ending is that okay. like the credits. No. There's nothing cool about the credits. Danny Glover, um, when he kills the the predator, kills Jerry. Spoilers. When he kills Jerry and all these other predators like show up, you think they're going to kill him, but they actually don't. It's actually part of like this ritual, and they take the body. They, may, they have sex with it. And the main sh- like the main like chieftain of that tribe or whatever has sex with it. He looks back at him. And he takes like this flintlock pistol and like throws at him like it's like a trophy for like if you're able to survive, then I have to acknowledge like this is part of like what we do. Our sexual attention. And then he actually looks at the engraving on it and it says Fuck me. It doesn't say fuck me. This you can't even guy. you can't even say the name you can't even like really make out the name that's on it, but it's dated seventeen seventy five. So like it Holy it, shit. It builds the it builds the canon that like what happened in the original Predator wasn't just an anomaly. It it's what happened in Cowboys and Aliens. Oh my god, this is it! No, it's, it's, <sighs> it's saying that like this, that Earth has been used as a proving ground for this this race for like many, many years. Oh, oh my god, and then they fucked? I, I, I didn't see it on screen, uh, but you know, I, I, I assume that he did. Whatever. Right. Um, but the the last film that I watched... I watched this on uh, New Year's Day with a couple of friends. It was really a, a more of a communal like oh. film experience. We watched. Uh, Thanks for our invite, asshole. I'm sorry. It was New Year's Day. I was I was drunk and hung Just over and, and eating, what did you watch? Eating cheesecake. Um, I watched What We Do in the Shadows. Yeah, yeah, and it it was. I thought it was okay. Yeah, I, I saw your rating. It didn't seem like you were too high on it. You know, I I thought that Jemaine Clement uh, of 
uh, the Flight of the Concords like fame, he was really good, and I liked. There were a lot of points that I really laughed at, but I just felt like the there were a lot of lulls. I not everything really really hit for me. For every single time that I like laughed out at like a mention of the Beast, and then showing them showing like this 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 archaic like monster with like this horned like phallus and two balls jutting out of its out of its sternum, just laughing the fuck out of that. Like even the swearwolves thing, kind of like it it kind of felt Whoa. it kind of felt flat for don't me don't speak ill of the swear I love I, I, I love it in, in that was theory one, that was one of the hardest I laughed at the, <laughs> probably at all last year in film because, I, I like uh, thinking about it but just watching it just wasn't it just didn't hit as well as I thought it would oh man yeah you like, did, what, what about the when the, uh, when the toward the end when they're um, when they're responding to some, I forgot what it was because it's been a while since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. But and then like that, they they just leave the dog there as if the dog did all that carnage. And then like the police officers actually look at me. Look what, yeah, you, look look what look, you did. And then they're making them. Now like, we're gonna have to put this dog down. Oh it's my like, god! Did you see what you did? <laughs> yeah, it was great. I do I do agree that that movie it wasn't as funny as I thought it was gonna be. I mean, I did have a great time with mm-hmm. it. I laughed at it a lot, but I was somewhat surprised by how straight face it was about just about throughout the whole running time like it was less jokey even though there were a lot of jokes and I feel like that's where my disappointment came in just a little bit is Mm. that because I actually feel like the unfunny parts still work for me on a moment-to-moment basis because it almost just feels like a fake documentary you know whatever and especially once once you realize at the end that they kind of cap off some of those arcs that I didn't think they were going to um, like with the at the old person's home and whatnot uh, little thing like that. So I'm I'm with you in the sense that it didn't live up to what I thought it was going to be. But uh, for what it was, it's such a unique little treat that I haven't really seen in anything. There is one sequence that I look back on very fondly, and that's when um, – first off, I love the Nosferatu vampire. What's his yeah. name? Peter Patrick. The one they keep down in the basement. The, the one they yeah. keep down in the basement, and yeah. he's like, hey, we're going to have like a yeah. – a, a, a house meeting, and he's just like he's just looking. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, we're not going to wake him up. He's a couple of thousand years old, so we're, he's not going to sit down here. Yeah. He ends up dying <laughs> because the vampire hunter tries like like go through the bottom, and then he ends up on fire. And not only that, like the cops come, and so one of the guys has to hypnotize him, and they're just pointing around the body and like <laughs> these two vampires that are fighting on the ceiling. It's like, oh, do you look at that? There's no smoke detector here. There's no smoke detector. I was like, oh shit. That was uh, good. I, I agree. Yeah. 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 There's there's certainly some great set pieces in the movie. Yeah. 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 I I especially like um, Jemaine Clement's like character like introduction like when they're going through like the different rooms and he opens the door and it's basically like looks up and it's like the uh, the cover to uh, Smashing Pumpkins Goo and he's like with like two like <laughs> like, like like yeah like yeah. four different girls and then it closes and he opens up again and it's like a regular room. <laughs> Oh, that was awesome. That was but that was my uh, – those are the films that I watched recently. Cool. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I have a whole list of films that I got to. Uh, believe it or not, usually uh, – Get it. Unfortunately, I, I've not gotten to see too much here recently uh, in this last uh, weekend. I got to watch a lot of films with my wife. Uh, we watched films we reviewed on this episode that she had not seen before, which included uh, Avengers Age of Ultron and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Which she really enjoyed both of those, as do I. So I was glad we got to watch those. Uh, and also, uh, I caught up on a couple of films. Uh, one of, or actually, a couple of 2015 films. Um, the first one I'll mention was uh, a Kate Winslet film uh, directed by Alan Rickman called A Little Chaos. Uh, it's a film about uh, the building of uh, 
the Versailles Gardens, and uh, one of, in particular, one of the areas of the Versailles Gardens, which became almost like a uh, like a ballroom uh, in this area. And the film is is quite interesting as it's about uh, kind of deciding to go from a certain view to and allowing in a, a different kind of viewpoint of what they should do with these gardens of oh having this you know grand order of how we always do things and, and trying things a little differently which this part of the garden definitely does and obviously it was interesting for me being have been to versailles gardens and actually seen the actual place where they were talking about throughout this entire film it's amazing to see that the actual original you know part that was put in for this is actually still there today and it's crazy to think that this was so many hundred years ago. Um, and I, although I did enjoy the film and I feel like uh, the storyline was very much interesting and it kept my attention the entire time. Um, when I find out that the film is completely a farce, it's kind of, you know, it hurts it a little bit because I'm like, Oh, is this like actually like somewhat a true story? And I look up like, well, a farce. What do you mean? Like, wait, so I guess, are you saying that the, like, the, like the film didn't happen? No, like, the the story behind the film is completely made up. Oh, okay. When he said a farce, I was like, like I thought you meant like a live wire comedy situation. Oh, like, I'm sorry. Like, like farcical. Yeah, I guess I. But like, no, no, I know what you mean because you you're referring to the fact that yeah, like I I got you. That I just, that it was that that. When I, that's why I just thought I'd ask to know which, yeah, which no. direction. And, that, and that's good that you did that because if it made it seem like it was that definitely not what you were just describing right, in terms right, right. of that way of using the the term the fart a farce, but uh, yeah. Um, the, 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 so the whole thing is fabricated. Well, f- since the main part of the story is Kate Winslet and her romantic relationship with Matthias Schoenwert's character, and uh, you find out that her her character was completely made up for this film. Yes, oh. the whole. But she's story. like the main character. She is, <laughs> and she is the one who comes up with the idea of the, these gardens and and that whole mm. thing. Her character is completely made up, apparently. So yeah. that does take away from the film quite a bit. I thought. Does it? Um, but, um, I, I did enjoy, uh, that, the entire part of the film or I, the film as a whole, I did, I will say I liked, like I gave yeah. it three out of five stars. Like I thought it was a interesting film. I thought it was kept my attention. I thought there were some, not necessarily twists, but things that were a little bit different than what I expected they were going to be. And there, there is kind of a, a twisty kind of thing, which probably could have been handled a little bit better, but that's okay. It was okay as it was. And uh, there was one definite standout scene, which, again, probably would have never happened, uh, which involved um, mistaken identity where Alan Rickman, who directed this film, and he plays Louis XIV in this film. Louis. Um, he is apparently devastated by, from the loss of his wife, who has just passed away. And he is in a garden, and he doesn't have any of his usual outfit on. His hat, his wig are all off. And he's just here sort of doing his gardening or whatever. And Kate Winslet stumbles upon the same garden and ends up having this long conversation with him. And for a lot of the conversation, doesn't know that he is, in fact, the king of France. So, Oh, um, got a little Roman holiday situation going on. <laughs> Interesting. So that was a very interesting part of the movie. And actually, even after she finds out who he is, uh, that's probably the standout part of the film, at least for me, because it's like getting down to the nitty gritty of these characters and actually having them be who they are. But again, the problem is, is that it's all pretty much made up. So it takes away a little bit, but I still found it fun. Yeah. And my wife really liked it, which added the enjoyment for me because yeah. I got to watch it with her and she told me all the things that she liked about it and certain things about costuming and, and uh, set design, things that I 
probably wouldn't have appreciated from it, which she did, which I now appreciate more. Yeah. yeah. So that was A Little Chaos, which oh. just came out this previous year. Oh. <laughs> the other new film that I saw, which uh, we went and saw in the theater, which Nick, I know you saw and also have some feelings about, <laughs> was the uh, new David O. Russell film, Joy. Oh, Joy. Yes. Um, and this film has gotten very mixed reviews. Uh, and not too many overly positive reviews. And a lot of previous David O. Russell films have gotten glowing reviews. Uh, the Fighter, uh, Silver Lines Playbook, and also American Hustle, which I didn't love either. But all those films pretty much got general praise. Yeah. Where this film has been very lukewarm. And I would definitely have to agree with that, as uh, this was not that great of a film. Even though there were parts of it that I thought were really good, and I thought that the potential was there for this to be a very good film, uh, the final product I wasn't that thrilled with. And I, I had so I had some problems with a lot of uh, how the characters were developed, and a lot of the writing, too, was just very, very poor in this film. And um, even though I, th I thought the performances were still, for the most part, pretty good, um, Robert De Niro is just, just you know, kind of there. And I don't know what his fixation with uh, with David O. Russell is because it, it all started with Silver Linings because which which he was really good in right he I was and say. he was really good and and he I know he wanted to do it for very personal reasons too and that's kind of the only reason why he did take it on mm -hmm. but it's like ever since then uh, you know he had his little cameo in American Hustle which I thought was one actually one of the worst scenes in that movie because <laughs> I just thought it was so shoehorned and whatever which it was yeah and then this movie you know I, he's not the only one who has this problem but I, I feel like almost all of us characters were just awful and uh, hmm. this is a movie that's supposed to be dramatic like it's not really a, I mean there are funny parts of it but it's mostly a drama if, yeah, sure. if, if you want to weigh it or something so if this movie is supposed to be a drama then why are all the supporting characters so comedically inept like I, I it's like I either have to find that's more funnier than I do because like you know like this is a scene when uh, when the character Jennifer Lawrence's character is getting married and Robert De Niro's character takes over the wedding toast and just is a horrible asshole like there was things like that that I just thought were so stupid and mean-spirited to to no end like um it was just supposed to make you feel sorry for joy yeah, that, and that scene by the way man that is like that that like de niro at giving yeah. the toast at her wedding and basically saying like like word for word like i fucking hate him and he's horrible and actually you know me and joy's mother got divorced because she's a bitch but I'm my like, new man. wife is awesome or whatever <laughs> and like it's supposed to be i think he thinks that that's like character development like now we know more about robert de niro but really it's just all these characters act in such a way where we're supposed to feel even more sorry for joy but in doing so we don't actually learn anything about joy in the process in my opinion is it as awkward as the the toast and melancholia yeah no okay because that's I... actual written well and that's like <laughs> actual like this is awkward because it's just so stupid and right. in my opinion like it just doesn't land yeah. um yeah if you couldn't tell uh i hated this movie i thought that's it was fine. awful and like i i agree that there was possibly potential but that is just so buried beneath utter shit that i just can't uh, I'm not not willing to dig through, and I think even <laughs> even Joy uh, Jennifer Lawrence herself, uh, I think she's miscast here because I feel like Joy as a character only becomes a Jennifer Lawrence type character in the last ten minutes, and before then we need someone a little more meek, a little more 
I don't know, like unassuming. Whereas, like, unfortunately, and I do think casting plays a big part. It's not that Jennifer Lawrence can't give that performance, but it'd be like if they they casted like Brad Pitt in a similar type role. Like, we just don't buy Brad Pitt as like a, I don't know, like a, a humble beginning type thing. Because eventually. I think certain uh, actors have their star power eclipse their roles, and um, unless they're truly going to like transform, like a uh, you know Daniel Day Lewis or something like that. Um, so that's why it just and especially because this is the third film that they've collaborated. So it's like at this point there is no point to why they're still working together, and 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 so that's uh, and that's the movie's all about her. And I just thought that part was awful too. I think something that David O. Russell is actually uh, uh, is clearly become a staple of his films is the thought of the family being horrible people for the most part, right. which if, if you look back through every film, the family plays a big part in every film that he's done, at least the, the, the big ones that I'm remembering, which are the, the ones that I mentioned already. Uh, at the same time, family always seems to be there in the end where they kind of are here. But I, I, I do like at the end of the film where she talks about, well, I still kind of support them, but I've pretty much told them to fuck off. So that's Yeah, weird. but then that's also more interesting material than what came before, but yet we're yeah. only treated to two sentences of it. Um, right. And not to mention when we get to that point, um, I, I think Robert De Niro has a line that was probably the emotional gut punch of the movie, if I was invested in it, but is when he says something to Joy, like, oh, no, it's my fault. I never should have made you think that you were something that you weren't, or, yeah. you know, whatever. And, like, that's a great line in and of itself, and it would work in a much better movie. But what kind of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, what really put me off is that he says that line, and then even though we have that two-minute exposition at the end of what happened, like like the next scene he's in, there's like no difference between the relationship. And I think that's utterly why the script fails is that because for all its character development or all its whatever, it is so unafraid to actually have its characters uh, – I don't know, like pull away from the others just to explore new dynamics that would naturally be created by how horrible these people are. So, well, we and you have been and I have been as well, kind of shitting on this film, and it was a lot of it was well deserved. Um, but there were parts of this film that I genuinely did like. Uh, I I do like that the film leaves kind of ambiguous about how good the character of Joy is because she's definitely our protagonist here and we're, we're, we're supposed to be at least, I think, rooting for her as this strong woman. But at the same time, she's selling garbage to women on the QVC, even though it's like, well, people can really use this. It's, it's a channel that really exploits women who sit around all day and watch the QVC channel. Watching so, daytime television. Right. Although I don't think the film is any way cognizant of such uh, of something as I would say complex as that idea, you know what I mean? Like I think this film definitely thinks that what she is doing is like a the right thing to do for her and for whatever, and that she's in some ways being empowering because of it and empowering other women because you you know whatever. Um, like I agree with you, but that like that is a that's an avenue that another director probably could have really wrung out. Because <laughs> uh, she made them up, uh, <laughs> wrung out of a, of a much better movie via its pathos and whatnot. But I, I definitely do not think that this film even thought about that once. Hmm. For me personally, I just I thought this movie was clearly on the side of joy of like the world is against joy. When will she finally break through to the other side? And she does because she gets to cut her hair. Yeah, the <laughs> magic pixie cut. Well, she cut her hair. Actually, and then, yeah, it's, it's that short, you know. Whatever. Yeah. Then she got a lot more confident, and she went and talked, talked tough to the Texas guy, and then he just 
his knees shook and he gave up everything and that was and then that was the end of the movie. And I think you and me should also talk about really quickly because I think we both agree, maybe not to the same extent, but that this trailer for this movie is one of the worst trailers I think in recent memory as far as misrepresenting what a movie's about. Uh, you know, there are famous examples in recent memory of things like like Drive's trailer makes it look a little more action oriented and you know a few others that I'm, are escaping my mind, but I think this movie. <laughs> is essentially he made the trailer for the movie that people would want to see and then because he didn't want to admit that this is a movie uh about a woman who made a mop and sold it on qvc like like none of that's even mentioned i tricked you (laughs) exactly none of that's even mentioned in the trailer and yet that's that's the narrative like crux like that's that's exactly what this movie is about and i just found that so bizarre yeah i i think what the the whole point is that the the mop and I, I think kind of to what I see what David O Russell is kind of going for I guess is that the mop is supposed to not be the important part of the story but for me at least it ends up being the important yeah. part of the story because not not necessarily that that's what we follow throughout the entire film but that is that is where she makes all of her money is she's selling stuff on the home shopping network which. I, I would not necessarily call that empowering for women. No, and and I kept waiting for like the other shoe to drop. Like I kept thinking, oh, so she's gonna get this mop like thing or whatever, and then she's gonna be like a Walter White or like she's gonna like open up her own drug empire. So I don't know, just something random. Like I kept thinking, and then by the end of the movie, I'm like, oh no, that's a that's that, it. That was her story was. Because and I do think we do follow a lot with it though. Cause we follow it from the very early inception where she's calling factories and having problems with the people who are selling her parts to the QVC selling even to like the final confrontation between her and the cowboy is just between her and the guy who was blocking her distributed. I forget yeah. now, but so it, it really is about uh, uh, the, the invention of the, of the self ringing mop. And if that sounds like a movie you would enjoy, then go, go see joy. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I still think so exasperated. I still think that they're, it could have been for a lot of people a good movie here, and I think a lot of people will go and see this and and like it. And I, I really don't necessarily. You probably disagree with this, Nick, but I, I really don't think there's a a big problem with that because I think that there were some good things here that a, lo- a lot of people would enjoy. I don't it was, wasn't wasn't really me. And yeah. Even though I thought there were some good parts of this film, I for the most part thought this wasn't anything spectacular. Yeah. And I can see really both sides of it because I could see someone arguing to me why this was a really good film and I could see them being right and I could see somebody like you arguing to me why this was a complete pile of total garbage and I would say you were right too so I I really don't think there's a wrong answer with Joy Switzerland over here (laughs) I uh yeah I I don't really think this was anything special so moving on away from uh all the weekend review films and on to the main film we're talking about this week uh, that is Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, which, uh, if you haven't heard by now, is the eighth film by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Eight's in the title. Oh, uh, yeah. And e- even in the uh, the second title card of the eighth film yeah. from Quentin Tarantino. God, what a great right title card, you. too. It was. I loved it. Um, so this film uh, is uh, directed and written by Quentin Tarantino and stars Samuel L. Jackson as... Major Marcus Warren, also Kurt Russell as the hangman, John Ruth, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee as Daisy Domergu or Domingue, however you want to say her last name, which that comes into play later on in the film. Walton Goggins, who's giving just a terrific performance here as Chris Mannix, 
And then other people as well, including Damian Bashir, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, uh, and Bruce Dern. So, The Hateful Eight, uh, if you don't know anything about it, which you should probably see the film before listening to this episode. Yeah, we are going to talk about it from start to finish, I think, right. immediately. And that's definitely something you've... out of. All, I'm a person who doesn't like spoilers. Or, I mean, I don't care about spoilers. Yeah. And I would not recommend uh, hearing about this movie. Just putting okay. that out there. And I think we're also going to mention both versions of this film, because... Um, we all saw have seen the Roadshow version, which was the longer version with the intermission yep. and the um, six extra minutes and all that. And I actually have seen the digital standard version as well, so we can compare them a little bit. This film is a, in the dead Wyoming of, of a... Pardon me. Try, try that again. <laughs> Wyoming is dead. <laughs> in the dead of a Wyoming winter, a bounty hunter and his prisoner find shelter in a cabin currently inhabited by a collection of nefarious characters. That's a tongue twister. I didn't know it. Wyoming winter. Yeah, that's a, I can understand why you would trip over that. Way to go, IMDb. Got room for one more? They call him the hangman. When the handbell says dead or alive, the rest of us just shoot you in the back and up on top of perch somewhere and bring you in dead over a saddle. But when John Roof the hangman catches you, you hang. Get in, boys! This here is Daisy Domergoo. She's wanted dead or alive for murder. When that sun comes out, I'm taking this woman to hang. Is there anybody here committed to stopping me from doing that? Well, well, well. Looks like Minnie's haberdashery is about to get cozy for the next few days. Yes, it does. One of them fellas is not what he says he is. Move a little strange, you're gonna get a bullet. Not a warning, not a question. A bullet. <laughs> Nick, I know you are a huge Quinn Tarantino fan, and I am as well, so I think we should go the opposite and start with Tucson on this. I think so, too. Really? Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um... <laughs> I have had some time to stew and to think about this film, and I honestly, I'm of two minds about it. I think there are a lot of there are a lot of things that I like about it, and there are a lot of things that, as I let them sit, like I don't know how I I feel about this film in the in the body of work that is Quentin Tarantino. Um, I want to just start with the, the the stuff that I really enjoy. I love the uh, the 70 millimeter like aspect ratio. I think that my favorite one of my favorite. Um, 
uh, like scenes, like one of one of my favorite clips from the film is actually in the actual title sequence when it actually like smashes cuts to uh, like alongside the the really gnarly crucifix and it has like filmed in pristine seventy millimeter Panavision. Like yeah. I just want to make that my Facebook banner. <laughs> um, I I really enjoy um, the act the performances of a lot of the actors in this role in in this movie. I think that Samuel Jackson is great. Kurt Russell is awesome. Uh, I'm really disappointed with the turnout for Michael Madsen, and I think that more comes to my feelings on my, my own theory on the the history behind this film. Because when we sat down and we went to go see it in the um, the road show. We, we were handed these pamphlets, right? That talked about the the illustrious history about how the hateful eight started out as a as a stage play, and then uh, yeah, the the description in the in the uh, in the booklet you get when mm-hmm. you go see the road show version, which is cool because it actually when they had these sort of road show showings of films, you as the description says, you would actually get one of these for the films you're going to see. Yeah. And yeah, the description of how the Hateful Eight came about seems to be a little bit different than the history I've heard about it. Really? Yeah. I didn't. Hold on, really quickly, because we have one right here. So while you continue, (laughs) Tucson, I want to read this because I did look into it, but I I guess I skipped to the more technical parts of it, like the seventy millimeter. Anyway, they they totally excised the whole part that this film was originally supposed to come out much earlier, and that was supposed to be in production earlier. Like it was announced in January of two thousand fourteen with the name and title and stuff. And this goes back to my theory about Michael Madsen is that one of the scripts was leaked, and that was the reason why. Quentin Tarantino decided not to film it. He decided to just do it as a stage play, as like, like a closeout thing. But the reason I think that Michael Madsen has such a reduced role in this is that it was rumored that it was Madsen's copy of the script that leaked. So maybe that might be an amendment mm. on part of the director as those. Like, you can be in the film, but fuck, you're not going to have any lines hmm. uh, or any like significant lines uh, for that matter. Hmm. Um, I enjoyed all of the, the outside shots. I love the, the snow tumbling off the, the mountains. I loved uh, especially the one shot where Obi has to be sent out to the um, – to the shit house in order to like dump the guns, I, I like the latrine, whatever. And basically, you see like this light, like silhouetting the uh, the haberdashery and like the 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 horse stable to the one corner, and it's just it everything was reminiscent of the thing, and I loved it. And going back to that, like I love the score from Anino Marcone because it was it, it was resurrected from the cutting room floor of what was supposed to be in John Carpenter's original, like the thing, which is one of my favorite films and listening to that score in combination with these images on the screen. Like I totally think that Carpenter made like the right decision, but that it's, it's, I'm so happy that he made that decision because it works so perfectly in this film. Like, can I say the, uh, the score and something I was definitely going to mention um, I think one of my favorite parts of any film, and, and the score is a big part of it, uh, would be the moment after um, both Obi and John Ruth drink the coffee, mm-hmm. and we're sort of in that like slow period where we're waiting to see if w- w- what's going to happen with them, mm-hmm. and the score that's playing under that is just incredible. So yeah. it is that completely stretches out that moment, and because most movies wouldn't be able to like wait that long and mm-hmm. I love that the score works perfectly for that moment and also Daisy I like how it's almost meta too because Dom- she's Dom- waiting got for it to happen so I just love how like even when you think like 
oh, now he's, it's, something's going to happen. And then all of a sudden she just like starts tapping the table. and mm-hmm. like, like The fact that the movie can like stretch out these moments for that long I, this is something that I personally eat up. Can I ask really quick yeah. what specifically jumped out at you guys in the description? I just I, remember reading through it when we were actually waiting for the film to okay. start. And I remember reading and it, it, it just sounded like the whoever wrote this was explaining how the hateful aid come about had come about and i just i i, I guess i'll need to read it again no, can just, i read it I, you can read it i just i just read it now and I, nothing jumped out at oh, me okay. as like it just it made it, seem, it just made it seem like it it was um Making it seem like the leak didn't happen. It's literally like the first oh, like well. sentence of this, where it's like the hateful eight made its auspicious debut on April nineteenth, two thousand fourteen, as a stage reading at downtown Los Angeles Ace Hotel Theater. And I'm just like, well, all right. I, guess, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, that's true. I guess but that's like, what I, mean. I thought. Maybe like there was something in here that like didn't happen, or and I can for me at least, I'm not trying to defend like Quentin Tarantino or whatever, but like mm-hmm. I don't know why they would mention like, well, after his script was leaked and he threw a hissy fit, I then su- the Hateful Eight was released. I, exactly. I, I suppose, but I feel like, I guess for me personally, I feel like that was such a major part of this film's production that almost like not even acknowledging that that happened almost is like takes away from what the final product is for me a little bit. So I mean, considering it's the advertising for the movie, like you don't read about like what went wrong in production when you go to the play and you get yeah. the pro- playbill. Like that's the problem with everything being public now is that everybody knows about it. So it, oh. almost like not including that is, and I, I don't want to, and I, I think there should be programs had uh, handed out before the dark night to make sure everybody knows that Christian Bale was a fucking asshole. And like, no, I'm just saying like, those are separate details that shouldn't yeah. necessarily okay. influence what we think of the movie. And, yeah. uh, it's not changing what we think of it. Okay. I was just reading through that and I was enjoying reading it and yeah. I was reading through and it, it even is trying to make it seem like this is like the history of the making of right. the film. It's certainly rose colored and I, yeah. I'm t- I, but I don't know why it would be anything else because it's marketing material for them that's true it, yeah. it, it, you, you are correct in that i guess for me i just felt like reading that i was like huh it <laughs> seems a little different than what i remember but all right right so that's all i'm saying about yeah. it I, it's nothing i mean i think it's great that they handed out these programs for a, a movie i mean it was very enjoyable and i remember the fucking teenager who was giving us our tickets it's like hey do you guys want this I'm like the fuck do i not want that yes i want that get <laughs> out of here <laughs> like it looked like they were, that they were not cheap to make either i mean I, I mean as far i mean sure distributing them wholesale obviously but i'm just saying it like it really does go all out i thought yeah yeah it was nice i'd, I'd have to say that i ain't I I think that there are a lot of things that I want to talk about later about this film and just unpack that. It was like, but one thing I want to mention just before I just like pass it on to somebody else is that a lot of these characters, like I thought that they had really great lines. Um, not all of them did. None of them were really utilized correctly. I think or utilized well. Um, and surprisingly enough, probably the one character that I may have like enjoyed the most would have been a Walton Goggins uh, character of Chris Mannix. Surprisingly, like I, I just looking back on it, I can't believe that he's the Walt, one character that Walton I, Goggins is the main lead. Yeah, I know, but like his character, like yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Walton Goggins is, is really good, and if you don't mind, if I take sure. the baton and start with my thoughts on this, go for it, man. Uh, I've seen this film twice, and the first time we went and saw the film. It's not that I was disappointed, but I love uh, both Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards. They are two of my top 50 films of all time. I give them both uh, four and a half out of five. And seeing this film the, for, for the first time, it was not as good as those films for me. Uh, and I 
guess I was slightly disappointed in that because I hold Quinn Tarantino. Uh, I hold his films to very high standards, and I guess that's not necessarily a good thing, but I expect great things when I go see a Quinn Tarantino film. And even though I enjoyed this film the first time I saw it and the second time I saw it as well, uh, I definitely didn't think it was as good as his best work. And the second time I saw it, I thought the same thing, even though I liked it slightly more than the first time. Uh, I'll say... In terms of things that I really liked about this film is that if you're looking for a Quentin Tarantino film, I think all the elements are there for you here. And I don't know anyone who could say anything otherwise. I mean, this, whether it be the fucking horrible language throughout the film or the unnecessary violence, um, terrific cinematography, great score, really great character writing, um, that's all really there for you. Uh, And... If that's what you want, go take three hours and watch this movie because it's there. I think this is Tarantino at his most indulgent, for better and for worse. Yep. Like you know, uh, like it's, it's almost like if you love Tarantino, there's no way you can dislike this movie. Uh, maybe not no way, obviously, because you never know. But just as, as in a general statement, if you love everything about his other movies, it's all here. And whether, of course, you love this one as much as the other one, that's going to be completely up to debate. And yeah, there's even mentions to other films, like s- subtle hints at other films oh, yeah. in, in, in his series. Even like uh, Michael Madsen saying the bastard's work is never done and that kind of thing. Yep, Samuel L. Jackson repeating lines from Django when he says, <laughs> I'm sure, I don't know. And, you know uh, yeah, and Red Zapple tobacco. Yeah, and even fucking Tim Roth laying on the floor <laughs> bleeding out to death. Like eerily similar to his character in Reservoir Dogs, and his character. What's the connection between him and Inglorious Bastards? You were the one. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, his his na- name in uh, this film, his actual name English is, Pete. Is, is English Pete Hickox, and he is uh, supposed to be the great grandfather of uh, Lieutenant Archie Hickox, who is Michael Fassbender's yes. character from Inglorious oh, Bastards. Wow. Well, because all of Tarantino's films are supposedly takes place in the same universe. Um, <laughs> Uh, but also, it's not just a fan crazy theory. Like, he does make some of these connections very, I would say, explicit, but also subtle. You know, whatever. yeah, yeah. So I thought I, I, that was something that I, that I liked, and I feel like a lot of the characters in this film are really easy to enjoy. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, I think, is putting on a really good performance here, and he fits really well into what his character is. And I liked a lot of things about him, uh, and especially that one scene that I think we'll probably mention a little more, which if You've seen the film, you know exactly what I'm talking about, which refers to him and uh, Bruce Dern's son out in the middle of the snow. With oh my God, yes. A certain a certain Black Johnson. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also, Walton Goggins is fucking great here. I really liked him the first uh, time going through, and the second time I've saw, I saw the film, I thought he was definitely the best part of it for me. Especially his enthusiasm at different parts of the film is just great. Especially when uh, they... Like somewhat make the connection, or actually, I think it's when Joe Gage, who is Michael Madsen's character, finally like admits, even though if he's not being serious, I'm the one who poisoned the coffee. And Walton Goggins is so excited, like he's like Christmas morning, he's like, I fucking, fucking knew, knew it. it, I yeah. fucking knew it. Yeah. Oh man, that was great. Yeah. Uh, and other people in this film are, for the most part, just fine. Like they're they're not bad. I don't I don't know if they're great, but they're putting on really good performances, and I I really enjoyed it. When it comes to things that I, I didn't love about this film, I feel like a lot of things that this film is doing, and if you go see it in the theater with a full theater, you're going to 
be able to pick out the people in the theater who are horrible people. You will have <laughs> the the illustrious experience of being able to know the guy in the top corner who cannot reel in his chortling every time the N word is said. That, <laughs> that or violence perpetrated against women. Yeah, or, or well, there are some parts in this film that I think are kind can be funny. Some of it is early on. I would say, well, like when dark slapstick. Yes, yeah, like when uh, Samuel Jackson punches her in the face, and since she's handcuffed to uh, Kurt Russell's character, they both go flying out of the coach, which is right. I think hard not to laugh at. Oh no, yeah. and I agree. But like five minutes before that, I had someone in my second showing. Um, the first time she just even gets hit when Kurt Russell takes out his pistol and hits her just on the face with the butt of the pistol. Like, I don't know that we had gotten into the territory where we can understand whether this movie is primarily comic or dramatic. So I, I just I don't understand the mind that just laughs at that. Because it's a Looney well, Tune conception of violence. Well, what about the, the like in a, the very end of the film when she is being hung to death? Yes. And there was someone in the first time we saw this film who was, like, cracking up during the scene. And um, I just feel so awkward because that man is probably a killer. That, wow, there was somebody, is... and it's not just him, but there was somebody in the second showtime that I went to that was uh, chuckling. And not just chuckling, like, ha-ha, but, like, like cracking up uh, during uh, Daisy's uh, hanging scene, which certainly uh, is alarming for society <laughs> and to be living in it. Yeah, so th- those kind of things, and I feel like this is the the one time Tarantino, I feel like, went a little overboard on certain things, where I- I'm not like going to say anything bad about him, because it's his film, and he can do whatever the hell he wants. But... Which r- respects are you talking about? Like, the are you talking about the N-word, or are you talking yeah. about the violence? No, or... the violence is definitely not overboard, I okay. would think. But I would, yeah. in terms of some of the language that's used, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to... Moralize. So, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, no, no. I, I was just wondering which one we were... Yeah, I, I guess I feel like some of the language was a little uh, unnecessary at per- certain points. And I think that's ultimately my, my biggest complaint with this film is that I think the characters and the dialogue is very much like usual Tarantino. Very well written. A lot of the dialogue between the characters is just excellent as per always. I feel like... Where this film struggles a little bit is the narrative structure of the entire film, I feel like, is not quite as good as other Tarantino films. Is that his writing is usually overall terrific, and I feel like in this film, it struggled just a little bit because I feel like he wasn't able to put the entire picture together and make it into a full film. Because I feel like at some points, this felt like kind of incomplete for me, especially towards the ending of the film where I feel like it just kind of stops being a film where as other films, I feel like have at least some sort of a tied up ending where this film, I feel like even though it does, it doesn't in the same way for me. So that was my biggest complaint, but overall I enjoyed this film quite a bit and uh, we'll talk about more details later as uh, I'm sure we have more specific things that we want to talk about, about this film. So Nick, I know uh, you are a huge Tarantino fan and you have a lot of thoughts on this film. So why don't you have at it? All right. Here we go. So this movie, I am a huge Tarantino fan. I pretty much really, 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 really like my least favorite Tarantino movies, or I just fucking absolutely love my favorite. I mean, there's really nothing that I've seen from him that I've disliked at all, or even just haven't felt some kind of passion or spark about. And the trend continues with The Hateful Eight. I did. I, I would say I loved it. I wouldn't say that it's... My favorite. I actually think I'd put two or three of his before, but I definitely 
enjoyed it more than I enjoy uh, quite a bit of his uh, uh, career so far. And I think because, A, it's it's almost like cheating with me because I, I've said many times on this podcast that I love things that take place uh, all in one room mm-hmm. where characters are just bouncing off of each other. And the fact that we get that and we get it with Tarantino's flair for dialogue, like, oh my god, yes, I'll take three more hours, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I eat it up. I, I love it. Um, that said, no, I don't think it's by any means perfect and uh in fact i'm gonna start with what i didn't like about it before i really start praising it and the one excuse me the one thing that i i I took i took away from the first viewing because i saw it in 70 millimeter twice i saw it with you guys and i did make my way back out to the theater that has it around here which another pilgrimage yes i made my way back out because i took another friend who wanted to see it and i said oh good you want to see him a 70 millimeter right he's like what's that i said don't worry about it So, How long going to be here? Yeah. Shut up. So we went to the 9.30 a.m. showtime <laughs> of it because he could only do it in the morning. And uh, But he was a, he was a trooper. So, um, I, I, so I've only seen it with everything intact, you know, the intermission and whatnot. And um, the first time I saw it, I was a little, uh, I would say, uh, I was a little off-put by the connective tissue between the two acts, okay? Everything before the intermission and everything after. And there are, I mean, it's obviously all cut from the same cloth. I'm not trying to say that, like, I watched a different movie once the second act started. But in some respects, I felt like I did. And I think the second time I saw the movie, it crystallized what I'm trying to say when I mean that, which is I feel like, and this is unintentional, so I'm not saying Tarantino meant to do this, but what what throws me off when I watch The Hateful Eight, and this is really the only thing that throws me off, is that I feel like the first half of the movie is from... Uh, is uh, now I gotta look at our little booklet to remember our character <laughs> names. Uh, it's from I feel like the first half, everything before the intermission is from John Ruth's perspective, not necessarily literally because we do obviously have scenes that exist outside of him because mm. when we go to the barn or something. And the second half feels like it's from uh, Major Warren's perspective because the first half I, I there were just little things that like. I don't know, just did not connect as fully as I really wished. Okay, so one of the complaints that people were having before they even saw the fucking film was, why is he filming in 70 millimeter uh, with an aspect ratio of, you know, two point whatever, four something out of one? Uh, Why is he filming such wide lenses uh, in a a movie that takes place all in one uh, setting in one room, you know? And to that I say, you're stupid and I hate you. Um, because what actually that does is that opens up that room and that we feel like we're in that room. Whereas if he used the, you know, a slightly smaller, it would have felt much more claustrophobic. What I loved about the use of that camera lens and that angle is that we really get to see two stories unfolding, whatever happening in the foreground and whatever's happening in the background. One thing I loved about watching it the second time, this has nothing to do with like the plot, but while during the, the first, yeah, the framing, like while the while the first act was happening and we were getting closer and closer toward the intermission, in the background I noticed there's like a whole story being told on who's getting the stew in what order. Like you know, like I, I just noticed like there's while um, I think Major Warren and um, uh, Bruce Dern's character are first talking before he goes into his monologue. You know, I'm looking in the background and I can see uh, Joe Gage getting his stew and then giving a bowl of it to um, Obi. You know, it's just like the, these things are actually happening and existing while, and I, just that detail alone I, I loved. And you really cannot get that without that wide lens. So I think that complaints about why it is shot in it is just silly and it totally worked for me. Um, having said that, I wished he would have used that background a little more. For example, I was kind of shocked that the second time I saw it, 
there is no discernible way to see somebody poisoning the coffee. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I, I think the only thing that was something that we kind of thought was possible, which was um, Channing Tatum somehow poisoning that, that didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. I'm, and, I'm pretty sure it was Joe Gage who actually poisoned the coffee. He couldn't have done that, though. Like, like, uh, right? Like, he couldn't have gotten up. He would have had to go yeah, up physically. Through. Yeah, right. That's yeah. what. That's what right. I'm... But and I wouldn't even like. It's not so much that I was looking for like. Oh, at one point we'd just see a, char- <laughs> a character. But I'm talking like, even the shot of the hand is not in the first act. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't even get a. So I find it a little strange that this movie sets up all these important dominoes, but then basically doesn't even set up the one of the most important one, because it's kind of the one that makes it all go to shit, uh, until we are already in the second act, and we're then already paying it off moments later. I, I just would have appreciated a little more connective tissue between the, the drawing room the drawing room mystery aspect and the chamber piece aspect. Um, but having said that, I, I still I eat this up. I, I love it. I'm not saying, I will say some of the characters are not very well defined, obviously, like you've mentioned before, Tucson, Joe Gage is barely there, mm-hmm. uh, Bob the Mexican, although he's hilarious. At least he had some good jokes to work Looking with. a chicken. Yeah, that and uh, his Silent Night rendition was just great. You know, like he had something to do. Joe Gage definitely really just didn't. Didn't have anything. Um, but I will say, what'll make me come back to this movie is not what I thought would be, because I thought it would be uh, the same way I want to revisit scripts like Dial M for Murder or Wait Until Dark, where I get to see the perfect, not crime committed, because this isn't obviously a, like a mystery, but like I get to see something unfold and then get to keep rewatching it to see just how far spread this is, when really this is more of just like a, a chain of events that just happens. And it, there's almost no real, uh, I would say... Um, like once the first thing happens, then everything else is just a like a, this is the next step because now I shoot you because now you showed me your gun and now I shoot you and that I really thought that there'd be more of like the to the paranoia the thing thriller aspect to it because all that completely disappears the minute the second act starts and that that was my big disappointment. But as a movie that might be saying a few things uh, about society and you know not to get into general terms. I, I hate to call this a message movie because I really don't think Tarantino is like concerned. He's not one for messages. But I still think you can learn from things that aren't explicitly teaching. And I think his sensibilities are perfect for the Western genre, which is why Django Chain is one of my all-time favorite films because I think he nailed it there. And while I don't think he got 100% here, there's still – he is perfectly uh, attuned for that wild frontier uh, universe because, uh, for example, you had said like with the N-word – I will say that at first I was thinking that, but A, uh, Gawker ran a piece that said the history of Tarantino using the N-word, and it charted every movie he's ever made, and this is not the the most. In fact, Django used it twice as much, like twice as much. uh, I I will say, I guess it's just the, I feel like it it seems like it came up in more general conversation a little bit more in Django than it does here, where I feel like here it's almost like the elephant in the closet every time because it almost is like pronunciated that someone is saying the N-word. I guess I, I'd agree, but I also feel like the second time I saw it, because I had thought that after the first time I saw mm-hmm. it, I sort of paid attention to the language of every character, so to speak, and I was surprised that John Ruth never says it. Um, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised about that because I think John Ruth is a very different character than he's right. being portrayed in the film. I guess I was surprised in the sense that I'm just like, I, you know, after you see a movie like this, you just expect, not expect it, but you just remember everybody saying it because it's just such a, mm-hmm. it's a movie that uses it liberally. But I do think that when you really trace who these characters are, only certain people use it and only certain people use it 
the way that they probably would use it. And yeah. that doesn't make it right or anything like that, but I don't think he's stepped over the line yet. The same way I think he may have stepped over the line in Django, but that's also that's exploitation film. Like, right. this isn't quite an exploitation. This is more of a genre exercise. So, mm-hmm. I, uh, at okay. least in my personal... Yeah. I mean, it's still dipped in the same sensibilities because that's like Tarantino's whole shtick. But I can I can see where you're. you're I'm just saying, from. like when you have a, a movie like Django and you have a a uh, an escaped uh, slave killing white slavers as they say the N word. You know what I mean? Like that is it the paints a picture of a exploitation. Right. Film. I'm not saying that there aren't exploitative elements in this movie because there absolutely are, but they're more tied into not the the history of cinema, but maybe the history of social norms and whatnot. And yeah, it, it, it's certainly definitely period appropriate. I'm not disagreeing. I'm, I'm not, I guess I feel like I don't feel like I hated it or anything like that. I just felt like, for me, there were two, even more times, I guess, than in Django, because maybe that's just the environment of that film did a better job of, of making it part of the film. I felt like there were way more times that it felt out of place that it was said, even though it is period appropriate. Yeah, yeah. It still felt like it was like, oh look, I'm saying the n word again. And I about that. And I agree. Here I go again. (laughs) And I actually agree with that. And then here's one last thing I'll say in defense of it, not because I'm saying what you're saying is wrong, but where I'm coming at it from is that I almost think that that's almost done purposely and almost in a very good way because I feel like once again he's made a. Uh, distraction from what's really happening. Like, he keeps creating these cultural conversations on whether he should be able to say the N-word as much as he does as a white, you know, male. And what I kind of love is that, once again, we and just the cultural conversation have singled in on this one aspect, and that's actually the, 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 the theme of the movie, is that people talk about race over and over and over and over and over, and then completely miss what other subgroups they're actually, you know, um, discriminate against. And of course, you know, um, when I, when we had left this movie, I just like, I love that the final moment of this movie essentially is a black man and a white man coming together. One, the white man, very racist, uh, and then killing a woman and like, that's justice to them. And so like, that's what brings them together. Yeah. And so I love that That's the final message of this movie. Cause I do think that is, it, it, I do think it is out of place in a way that, just like them, like they don't even realize uh, how far away from justice they truly are. While we're talking about justice, uh, there was one part of the film which, uh, seeing the second time, I definitely uh, when when I was watching it, I was like, "Oh, well, that's like pretty much the explanation of what this entire film actually is." The justice uh, without dispassion. Yeah, it yes. was the uh, Tim Roth discussing the difference between justice and frontier justice, mm-hmm. which I feel like is very interesting because um, even though. Uh, what Samuel L. Jackson and Walton Goggins are saying at the end, well, we need to honor John Ruth for doing what, what he meant to do. They're not doing at all what he, they're, they are passionately murdering this woman because mm-hmm. yeah. they've got, got, they've got a, a reason to because of all the shit that's happened before that. But still, that is the like definition of between what Tim Roth was saying, between what justice is and what frontier justice is, and that frontier justice is actually not justice at all. Exactly, and I think that gets at what is what we're seeing in today's world when we talk about like the Tamir Rice shooting and uh, and those kind of things where it's like it's okay for apparently for a white cop to do that out on the streets, but the minute we ask for a guilty verdict, like that's not okay. You know, like I'm just saying, like I. 
I'm just saying I, I do think that we we have two coded languages for how we talk about certain types of, of justices and whatnot. I think I don't know that Tarantino was specifically going for that, but I do think he's totally self aware about how this plays. Like this is a Western that is just as relevant to the times back in the time that it takes place because of what it was portraying, and yet even more so, and it, I think it's kind of great, he's saying that we've devolved in a way because our pursuit of justice had only made us uh, completely blind to all the other injustices. And yeah. So that's why I, I really ended up did loving this film, even if like the, the mystery element didn't quite add up to a lot. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, John Roof, uh, Kurt Russell's character, because he's supposed to be... Like when that whole scene was happening between him and Oswaldo Mowbray, like Tim Tim Roth's character, like they're supposed to be, they're talking to one another. Like Tim Roth is talking to Kurt Russell, and he's like talking about like you know have to be dispassionate in order to like be able to carry out justice effectively. Um, first off, I think that as, just taking it from a meta standpoint, like I thought that was really good acting on part of that character. Yeah. Once we know like the reality of who they are. Yeah. Um, and and what it says like with with John Roos' reaction, he doesn't really react in a way. But I've made me start thinking about his character, where he's supposed to be, he's the hangman. He's the guy who's like, you know what? I'm not going to shoot you. I'm going to march your ass all the way to town, and I'm not going to cheat like the uh, the, the hangman. I'm not going to cheat the hangman out of out of his out of his due. And but he's like, also personally not going to be the one who kills them. So. Ex- exactly. Yeah. But he's also yeah. he he's supposed to be the. The archetype of the the Western uh, impartial lawman yeah. who parades the everybody. John Wayne type, the John Wayne type, but he's also like some other like later like like fusion of of the lawman, and how he basically takes uh, Daisy Domergu like all the way there, and it's like he's trying to get her to town, right? And you know, it's like I, I started thinking like, how would he if if Domergu was a man? How would this play out? Like, how would how would I feel about this? Because like, it seems like he doesn't really give a shit whether you're a woman or a, or a man in that that regard. Because he says that time and time and again. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. He says he doesn't give a shit, but he it almost seems like he relishes in his moments in its outbursts of being able to inflict physical violence on Domergu in order to put her into line. And I and I just and I feel like that's it, it kind of strikes to the point that every single character is. Their their actions betray their their nature. Oh, absolutely. Their, their actions betray their nature. You're supposed to be the dispassionate lawman, but yet there is a part of you that take that relishes in inflicting harm on Domergu. You're supposed to be the 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 lawful like black like major, but you lie and you purposely construct. You know, I want I want to talk about that too yeah. because I I personally okay. When when Samuel Jackson's character Mark Marcus uh, Warren when he basically like lays out to uh, General like Sander, Smithers. San, San, Sandy Smithers like how he humiliated his son like killed him and sexually humiliated him like in that moment I had a lot of fun with that scene because one like just watching like Bruce Dern as this as this cantankerous like confederate just clutching his pearls underneath his woolen blanket well, it, with it, a it, death glare of like of astonishment after hearing about how his son was sexually humiliated and then, and then you see the image which you ultimately have to assume is what we're supposed to be seeing is what getting pictures aren't you well yeah, yeah what what we're we're seeing what Bruce Dern is imagining, yeah. which is this this black man with his hand <laughs> on the on the back of his son's naked body, his head forcing him and his his 
penis into this the, his son's mouth. Yeah. And he's got his hat off like he's riding a riding he a horse. He practically looks into the camera too uh, as he starts <laughs> doing his maniacal laugh. Yeah. Too, it, which I also think suggests that he's making it up. Yes, like like he yeah. makes up so many other things in the movie. I, yeah. I don't necessarily think he's making up the part that he murdered his son. No, I, no, I think either. he's totally making up though right. the sexually he, because because he knows his full name and he's not even in the cabin when the yeah. when the, when he first mentioned which I think is the first major clue that he he uses half truths or so yeah. to speak. I well, I thought it yeah. was um I I just I just thought it was funny in the moment cuz like seeing like Bruce Dern's face was just perfect because it's like oh my constitution my delicate southern constitution well that scene also plays differently i think once you've seen the second act because for me uh that was another i would say like a very thin layer but another layer of complexity when we realize that that character is not is the only character that's been there the whole time but is also not in on the crime so to speak of what's happening uh, the people masking their identities mm-hmm. and he's been told to basically shut up and sit there and not say anything I, the, the part I love about that especially seeing the second time and watching so the entire film play out is that he's specifically told by Jody to not say anything to yes. Kurt Russell's character and when Kurt Russell comes up to him and asks who he is he's like I have nothing to say to you <laughs> yeah. yeah and not only that but then you can I, that's why I think his is actually one of the best performances in the movie because yeah. uh, so some of his facial expressions like when Kurt Russell first walks in before he even goes up to him I think at one point he just looks at him and then Bruce turns like locks eyes but then looks away like he's just so afraid to obviously engage in conversation or whatnot. Um I also think, for me, uh, I think we've all kind of mentioned it, and or at least alluded to it, but Chris Mannix, as played by Walton Goggins, is definitely, for me, uh, my favorite character in this movie. Not because I think he's giving the best performance, which I do, like, I think it's pretty great, uh, but also because I think his character is the most interesting character in the entire movie, and for me, it's because he's the only character that actually goes on some kind of a journey and evolves in some way, even though it's like doesn't even seem like he does. Because what I love is that you know he's introduced as this completely bumbling, incompetent, like you know nepotism esque uh, sheriff, new, newly elected sheriff who's the son of a very famous rebel uh, soldier. Uh, Do you- yeah. Can I really yeah. quickly, and I, I really just noticed this in the scene where they're having their discussion in the coach about he, him having knowledge of Marcus Warren's previous past. Did you get the feeling at all, at, at all, any point when uh, he's talking that he was talking like a Southerner trying <laughs> to talk as what they think a black person would sound like? Hmm. When he was, let's see, did I get the feeling that Walton Goggins, when he was talking about... No, just just in that scene. Did you think that Chris Mannix, the Chris Mannix when would, he was talking to Marcuse? I think sometimes, yeah, when he talked to Warren in general, he slipped in and out of like mock racism by by means of imitation of yeah. stereotypes. Mock yeah, yes. intonation. Okay, because yes. because I, I, when I saw and I hate going back to saying well when I saw it the second time, but when I went and saw the film the second time in that scene, I'm like. Is he like making fun of him for? Oh yeah, and like, but not like making fun of him. Like, is he like trying to do a black voice now? I think no, no. I definitely okay. think, I, okay. even the way he repeats like uh, that N word there, and he and he just says like that N word there, and you know, like just like I feel like he goes in and out of that like horrible racist character, but also he's maybe the most complex character in the entire movie. He's probably, like, going back to my statement about Mannix, is like, he's probably the only character that really keeps it 100 the entire film. Like, he's just, I'm just a racist confederate old boy. Good old boy. But then even he, I would say, doesn't 
become not a racist or anything like that by the end. But even he is the only person who, like, sets aside his racism, so to speak, for his idea of justice, which could be just as misguided as his racism, as we see, because it's him hanging the woman. Which, Which is another part of Samuel L. Jackson just setting up a lie for him pretty much to survive, even though he's in all likelihood going to be dying in this room and bleeding to death. Uh, he his almost certain death is going to be at Chris Maddox's hand, and even though we we do get the kind of impression that they're having some sort of camaraderie happening together, it really isn't totally one hundred percent true because you don't really know what to think about Samuel Jackson because a lot of what he does in this film is him just doing things so he can get certain things out of it, and even like there's no way for me at least I can't think that it's even possible because. He does mention the thing about the Lincoln letter and then saying to John Ruth, well, it got me in the coach, didn't it? Like, right. And that moment is also great because I yeah. love John Ruth's uh, – I love the way Kurt Russell plays that, like, hurt mm-hmm. when he – you know, he's like, wait, you made that up or whatever? How and, could you lie to me like that? Exactly. And then all of a sudden he – you know, and that's when his racism comes out because here's a person who kept priding himself on, you know, like, justice and not, you know, and treating everybody, quote-unquote, equally, yeah. uh, whatever. And then just the minute Samuel L. Jackson character says one lie to him, you know, he says something like that. So it's it's true what they say about you people. And I, and I also love Samuel L. Jackson's response to that. His character says something like, you know, I'm going to let you off with a warning since I'm the only black person you know, you know. So I just, I, I really love that completely awkward uh almost cringe inducing navigation of like different forms of racism whether it was like the the coded language or like the very overt racism and whatnot um and i also i gotta say that i love that final scene with um between samuel L. jackson and walton Gotten's character and i love it because after uh, you know i'd already mentioned how like it you know it's like the the hanging of a woman is seen as progress in this world, you know, because the the black guy and a white guy put aside their differences. But the other thing is that there's there's nothing even more, I would say, potent than the image of after them doing that is this this incredibly racist white guy and I would say a pretty conniving and uh manipulative uh black major in ways where he even uses racism to his advantage, you know, which is also mm-hmm. kind of like you can either you have to be against it or you have to be, you know, whatever. You have to work it exactly. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, the two of them bleeding out together on a on the same bed as they both basically uh, read the fake Lincoln letter. Mm-hmm. Like this, this the two of them have basically uh, almost mutually agreed to give in to the bullshit notion the great of a better, yeah, of a better tomorrow. And I, just that final Im- message, image, whatever you want to call it, is then coupled with the final song, which I am a sucker for. Great clothing songs and yeah. the use of Roy Orbison's uh, the There Won't Be Many Coming Home uh, which is from a western The Fastest Guitar Alive I think it's the name of the western uh, but just the use of that song which even starts with the opening lines uh, listen people uh, you know women child and man like it's almost like it's it's saying like there's something here to actually learn from and so mm-hmm. I, I do not know. I really should have looked this up, but I, I didn't even necessarily know that I really wanted to talk about this right until now. Um, but one of my favorite parts uh, of the first viewing and definitely the second viewing, when I and it's such a simple part of the film, but I loved it, and it was the piece of music behind it that made it so much better. And it was the only, for me, standout part that involved Michael Madsen, uh, as of when is, he is walking out to go out and kill the last remaining person from... Uh, the and and the music that's playing behind that and the yeah. slow walk of him and like smirking as he's walking and following the blood trail, 
Oh man, that was that was excellent. I don't know what's up, but I know what you're talking about. Where yeah, yeah where he's opening the door. Yeah. And, yes, yes. Um, the, although that was a weird. I, I love that scene. Although mm-hmm. I really thought there was going to be some kind of payoff to the idea that there was a behind the. Not because I thought that guy was going to like come back or something like that, but I kept waiting for someone to go behind there and maybe accidentally find that body. Even though I know that they hit him. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, it's just a. Uh, but uh, no, that scene is. Uh, photograph uh, the whole photography of yeah. it is great. Um, can, can I uh, also mention please. something else that is a a aspect of the film that I think we all gen- generally didn't didn't like the first time through, and the second time through I had a completely different view on it, and that is the out of nowhere narration that comes at the start of the second act, which yes. the second time through I absolutely love for two reasons. Uh, one, there was no intermission, and I thought it was going to make the narration even worse, where I feel like it made the narration even better, actually, because I was like, this is so out of place, and I actually kind of am digging it. But the thing that really made me enjoy it, in which some I didn't know the first time, is that that is actually Quinn Tarantino delivering the narration. I know. Which actually makes it kind of cool, because you have the director of the film explaining things about the film in the middle of the film, which is totally fucking ridiculous, and I loved it. Oh, no, that totally goes with his whole, like, he, you know, he's a master storyteller, so mm-hmm. to speak, and so it's almost like he's got you where he wants you, and now mm-hmm. he's even manipulating the story from this level, yeah. too. So mm-hmm. I'm, all, I'm completely with you, and when you had texted me, and I said, I thought it was like a British dude... Yeah. Just so you know, and I want to clarify, okay. I was actually thinking about a season two Fargo episode because <laughs> Fargo doesn't have narration, but one episode did, okay. and, and it was Martin Freeman uh, doing his. Uh, he is in fact British. Yes, and so it was such a random thing that I was getting the two confused. Anyway, I agree that I the narration definitely worked for me. Uh, the, the, I mean, I love too how straight faced he is about like the whole. Uh, and while they were talking about black dicks and white <laughs> mouths or something like that, you know. Yeah. Well, and when he's ending the the final, because the second part of the narration is when he's explaining Domergu's got a secret, yeah. and I love that part of it too. That's where why this chapter is called, called Domergu's got, got a secret. So he whispers almost the end, yeah. which is great. And that's the another thing that I loved about the film is that, uh, and I, I like how um, Daisy kind of explains how. Well, I'll give you that about John Ruth is that he's you know he's got courage and that kind of thing, but he's stupid as shit. And actually, he's not necessarily the smartest person ever. And that's a great thing about why no one throughout the entire film before this has any idea who this person is because he's mispronouncing her last name the entire time because <laughs> her name actually isn't Domergu. It's actually Domingre. Yes. Domingre. Yes. And, yes. and I, I like that it plays up then later of that, oh, he's that's Jody Domingre. And like, oh, shit. Oh, that's who that was. All right. <laughs> Speaking of that, actually, let's, we should probably talk about possibly even though I wouldn't say that this was an all-time classic movie for me it's far from it but an all-time classic movie experience for me personally and I think I told you this guys uh but is when a movie can completely transform what I'm like thinking about a movie like just like completely blow away what I'm watching and whatnot and pull back way more layers than I thought it would previously capable of and it and this movie had one of those moments for me and when the when the camera sweeps from the from the action to the standoff down under the floorboards to a previously unseen Channing Tatum hanging out there about to basically bust open the entire narrative and set it into a completely different course. Like, Redraws the entire like dimensions of the space that we've already like pre-established. Exactly. The entire film. I, that moment, just that, just that moment uh, was just one of those like, Oh my God. Like I just, I love Tarantino's way of telling the story. I will say that that moment for me would have had been even greater if I wouldn't have known Chain Tatum was going to be in the film. I guess the reason, and so on the flip side of that is because I knew he was going to be in the film and we had saw, I will say this, if we hadn't had 
Major Warren's fake story. I would have, I just like from that moment on, I kept thinking we were going to use Shannon Tatum in a fake scene or in mm-hmm. a flashback. So because I, I guess it was just kind of like when, when it comes down, I'm like, oh my god, he's been there the whole time. <laughs> like because it was that kind of a realization for me, it totally still worked on me. Yeah, I, um, I'm not saying it didn't work because I, I, no, and yeah. I really did enjoy. I think that that scene is probably I don't know if I would say my favorite, but the. The earlier that day scene that involves Channing Tatum and all of the original gang showing up and doing bad things to Minnie's. uh, I agree that there's no... Finish that sentence. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say Minnie's uh, haberdashery, sorry. But um, if if it had been like a Matt Damon interstellar thing where I wouldn't have known beforehand and all of them, I was like, holy shit, that's fucking Matt Damon. Right, or Kevin Spacey (laughs) 7 or something. Yeah, no, there's no reason to actually advertise his name. I'm, I'm with you. Which I think it would have made that even better. Yeah. Um, but it still was good. And I love that scene when they, they come back and that's the like kind of leading up and you see all the dominoes that happen of little things that you wouldn't have even noticed if you weren't watching if you're watching the film for the first time. And I, I've I'm just a sucker for Tarantino having exploding jelly beans. Um I just loved it. Yeah, yeah. and I love that Minnie's haberdashery prior to the the hateful eight uh, are all arriving is like the happiest place on earth. Like <laughs> Zoe Bell's like, Oh gee shucks. Like, like you better fix them some coffee. And he's like, you better move your ass. And then, it's two different like extremes of the spectrum where we have like the actual hateful eight itself, which is this, this powder keg of, of pure malice and, and, and primal like disregard for one another. And then you have like this almost, saccharine sweet oh you better get them that coffee you want some jelly beans i speak french we oui, we oui. oh my god that was that oui, was oui. awesome that yeah. was a great ask was, me if my ass, ass is big that was a great little callback i thought a little bit to Django, to Django because yep. of the french speaking and the, the whole thing of her knowing one word and saying she knows how to speak french oh man <laughs> Speak it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I agree. And also the the idea, and I think that's also what makes the the whole movie even more potent uh, to reuse a word, but uh, is that the idea that that this this place does completely function and exist without the hateful eight, and it's not until violence stains this land, so to speak, that mm-hmm. this becomes a a territory of people who don't trust each other, who don't you know whatever. Like the, the contrast between those two aren't isn't just a one note joke, but also something that I think says a lot. Like if this is Tarantino, whether he is or not, but if this is Tarantino saying something about America, uh, there is nothing more American than going onto somebody else's land, blowing them all away, and then pretending like it was yours all along. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, just yeah. even that little detail, I, I loved. Yeah. And the the whole thing of well, I know she wouldn't have left you in charge because beforehand she had a sign that said no Mexicans <laughs> and no dogs allowed. Yeah. You know why she took that sign down? She started letting dogs in. <laughs> that was oh, great. God, that uh, was great. I have to say, this couldn't be a Tarantino film without violence. And I will say that I've seen some people say that there wasn't enough of that in this film. And boy, you weren't watching the right film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say it was a little monotonous and not in a bad way, but like it was just simple gunplay. Were you, you know? not watching Daisy this entire well, fucking movie? She's doused and, in, and, in fucking like oh, viscera. Yeah. How about the part where she gets fucking blood thrown up on her face by Kurt Russell? Yeah. Everybody in the theater both times was like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't really get a laugh. It's like if you make them uncomfortable enough, then they'll be okay. Okay, but if you just punch her in the face, that's comedy. Yeah, but yeah, uh, well, I really shit. enjoyed that. Like the the project. Oh, her, the proje- her, oh I was gonna say you really enjoyed project- her getting thrown up on. Her face. No, no, the projectile vomit of of John Roof and Obi was was interesting, and I was just like, huh, I don't think I've ever seen that before in a Quentin Tarantino film before. That's new. 
Huh. And not only that, but the uh, I love the silent comedy going on while, while this is happening and how long it takes for Chris Maddox <laughs> to like realize not to drink the coffee. Well, John Ruth has to like explicitly tell him, don't drink the coffee. Yeah, I know. But he's still looking at it. And it's not <laughs> fucking the, dumbass. Like, the, the final like spurt of – he just like throws it on the ground like, oh, no, I guess I shouldn't do this. Uh, which is also a payoff too. I love how that's his ultimate uh, decision later on in the movie. He can either – kill Damagu or so to speak with mm. uh Major Warren or he could take her side and kill this person that he was probably predisposed to kill what, way early in the movie. What's gonna guide his his decision making? Is it going to be his inherent prejudice for this black man or is it going to be his earned disdain yes. for this woman and her group? Yes. Which I, is a weirdly hopeful message. Well, no, I'm just saying know, like yeah. that somebody can make that decision. Well, I say hopeful in the sense that, like, not because it's going to be a better world now. Hell no. No, no, not like that. But, like, that's, like, the best we could have hoped for Oof. in this awful situation. It's both hopeful and terribly fatalistic. Yes. When I was talking about the uh, the violence in this film, uh, there were two parts that were, like, far and away stand out, like, not, like, best Tarantino violence in films ever, but great for me. Uh, one being the shootouts, or not shootout, but when they, the murdering scene in uh, the, the earlier that day part where they are shooting all the people and stabbing them and shooting through the door. And then as that great Michael Madsen scene, that is a, a great part. Like as a classic Tarantino, it wasn't quite as major as the, uh, as the Django scene that involved, oh, like that was lengthy people but, on wires, and yeah, <laughs> but it w- that was much more kind of like what happened in Inglorious Bastards when you have the ending of the bar scene. Yep. Uh, and then I just for me, there was some about it that made it look so ridiculously fake and real at the same time. But when Senor Bob gets his face shot off, man, that was awesome. That's what he's already on the ground, right? And then yeah, he just stands. He's pretty much over. already yeah, dead, yeah. and, and he that, just does that. And it comes back later to we'll give you Bob. Well, I shot his fucking face off. So you didn't get nothing for that motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, that's Tarantino in a nutshell. Is uh, the line I'll paraphrase from Django is uh, is. Dr. Schultz line, I just couldn't resist. Yeah. I just couldn't help myself. Yeah. And, and that's, But that's what people wanted. Yeah. Like, when, when his face gets shot off, there were two people in this second time I saw the film being like, yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> like, they were just excited to see someone's face get shot off. And, you know, I don't necessarily think there's really anything wrong with that because it's that ridiculous comical violence that we've come to know and love. Right, and they know. successfully build up the idea of why somebody would shoot this person's face off. You know, yeah. like, it's not just like... The first five minutes of the movie, Kurt Russell putting a, <laughs> the butt of a pistol into Daisy Dumbledore's yeah. face, like with excruciating sound effect, you know, which I don't think and he, blood. yeah, and blood yeah. and whatnot. The one trickling, yeah, that was thick. Yes. That was a thick trickle. Yeah. Um, there, there were three things that I wanted to to mention. One of them was a joke. The other one was a callback, and the other one was a problem that I had with the film. So I'm okay. going to start with the the first one. All right. The joke uh, that I thought was really funny was at the beginning of the last act, which was Black Man, White Hell. Yeah. When we actually like. When the entire dimensions of this space have been redrawn, and we understand that um, what's his name, Channing Tatum's like character, Jody, 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 right? Jody uh, Domingue, Domingue is is in the the basement, and we have uh, Mannix and Warren that are pointing their guns at the at the at the hole, and he's just like, "You better throw up your gun," and it's like he throws up one, and it's like, "I don't have another gun." Well, you better shit another gun because yeah. I'll shoot your ass right now. I was yeah. like, "Yep, yeah, see, didn't I tell you?" I thought that was hilarious. Um, <laughs> And it, it involves – and the second point that I wanted to draw to involves that same hole when you see 
what happened in the haberdashery and how like Channing Tatum's character like goes down there and he looks back up and it's a it's a visual callback to one of Quentin Tarantino's most recurrent like like visual tropes, which is the um the trunk the trunks the, yeah. the trunk shot. I mean, there's no trunk possible in this thing, but they have a trunk shot in this film, yes. and I thought it was awesome. Yeah, no, I totally. Uh, um, for sure. My my last point, and it's actually a, a major problem that I have with the film, is that you mentioned this before, Nick, and you were talking about um, the the sense of mystery, like the the, the draw, drawing house mystery, and the the lack of paranoia. Like those two are tied together because the the mystery, which itself should be one of the major draws of this film, is so fucking weak. Yeah, and I and I and I just I don't care for it, and that's why I feel like there's a complete uh, deflation of 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 paranoia and tension within the second half of this film, and I'm just like, okay, well, I guess this is just a good old boy standoff. As as a mystery, this does not hold up on a second viewing, uh, because and I can say that I can think of mysteries that do hold up on a second viewing off the top of my head, like I mentioned earlier, like Dial M for Murder or mm-hmm. Wait Until Dark, where you know exactly what's going to happen, and yet the suspense in the moment of like how it connects together is just way better and done. You, and you want to know why it rewards on that for, for replays? It's because it actually – what you were talking about, how there's stuff that's happening in the foreground and the background, it's like it actually – those those other films reward the audience for being able to pay attention to those different components that are working in, in right. tandem with one another. Whereas I could not have – I couldn't – I'm I'm pretty damn sure that I could not have deduced – who the fuck actually poisoned the coffee had I actually like looked at that, that film on its own and not had to deal with that fourth ball breaking moment. And there's another point where uh, you mentioned, Alex, when we were in the the the, the, the Roadhouse show. Um, when, the Roadhouse show. Yeah, the, the Roadhouse show, whatever. When, um, the Roadshow. The Roadshow, road sorry. Um, when Obi was sent out, it goes against with one of my favorite scenes. When Obi was sent out with the guns by, I think it was Roof by yeah. John Roof. It, yeah. They were all dismantled, and he was. They were sent to like go out to the to the shit the well. Like, throw it down the well, and you had a really good point, like a predictive point, where you're like, "It's like I bet he's gonna like put one of those guns back together because you only saw one gun go in there." Right. But that totally dropped, and I yeah. felt, yeah. I feel no, I feel like that is an attribute of a better mystery, yeah. and that that it, it's it just. Never I'm, pays off. I'm completely with you because the, and the reason why the mystery doesn't hold up a second time, especially, and I would say it kind of deflated itself the first time I watched it, even in the second act, because it's a little too straightforward because there's only two people that are trying to figure out the mystery. It's John Ruth and Major Warren. Unfortunately, they're also on pol- uh, polar opposites of... Uh, of the information, which is a John Ruth is too stupid to really figure any of it out. Like he he could zero in on the fact that yeah, like everybody. One of these him, things is not like the other. But he's also the same character that thought Major Warren was in on it just from the moment he showed up. So really, he's not very smart, and he just thinks everybody's out to get him. Uh, but on the other hand, you have Major Warren's character, who's actually I would say pretty much got it ninety percent figured out by the time he's walked into the. Uh, or not even walk because he doesn't go into it right away. But by the time he got there and he sees Bob, he's already figured out that yeah. minis, you know, whatever. And because we have a character that is already, you know, it's not like a Hercule Poirot situation where, uh, like, Murder on the Orient Express, uh, you know, yeah. where he's interviewing all these characters to get the inconsistencies. And when you rewatch that film, you can go along with him and realize, oh, here's where he realized that this couldn't have been here, and you know, whatever. Mm. And so I think that is, I'm completely with you, Tucson. And that's why the paranoia goes straight out the window. Uh, is because you you have one character too stupid and one character too smart uh, in order for that to be effective. 
So I, and I considering it was billed as something to that effect too. Yeah, is that's kind the of, entire draw of it. It's yeah, like yeah. A, I, it ends up being a little bit of a different film, though, right? Like I, what it came out, it came out as something different, and I appreciate what it did come out as. But that one little aspect, because it's still there. Uh, I mean, that's why we we have a chapter called "Dobberku's Got a Secret." And, yeah, you know. Can so, I can I say please. that I, I I do love and I, I like that it's just left how it is, and it's totally fine. And a lot of other films wouldn't be, and a lot of other directors, most other directors would not have been okay with this. But the whole one of the taglines of the film is "No one's here without a, a damn reason." But there is, in fact, the two characters who are there who have no reason, who just happen happen to show up and be there, who they were out in the middle of the snow and their horses died or whatever, which is actually ends up being exactly what happened. And there's never any, like, an aha moment of, oh, actually, they were planning this the whole time. Like, they just happen to be there, and I, they end up being the two who end up living at the end. I feel, yeah. I feel like the whole reasoning behind that tagline, nobody's here, like, without a reason – isn't supposed to because it's it's not because of deliberate machination to actually go there, but just because like oh check out the serendipity of all these people who are connected by like the, these loose threads. One of the other taglines says I explicitly says something like um, eight hateful people or something, and then the one deadly secret that connects them all. I mean, like that kind of marketing is a little wrong, and yeah. I mean it's not wrong is like secret. morally wrong, what but like doesn't do the film any favors. Everyone else who is in that room at the time is all there because of Daisy Domingue. Right. Yeah. And they, they really, uh, they both have no fucking idea who she is. Yeah. Because, well, mostly because they don't know her last name, their actual last name, but at the same it's time. Roof. Um, also, too, we, we were talking a little bit about um, uh, women and, and females, and there's just the one in this film. Um, I, especially the second time, uh, I feel like when she's having her whole, like, almost like begging for her life and saying, well, if you will give you this money and you can take the bodies and, and get money after this and we'll, we'll excuse what you've done. Uh, if not, all these 15 people are going to come and they're going to kill you and you're, so you're dead either way. So why don't you just let us go or let us live and kill Samuel L. Jackson's character. It's like a really like hidden line when she says, well, I'm the leader of this gang now. Don't you agree? And both Michael Madsen and Tim Roth kind of like slightly say, yeah. oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, like they are just lying through their teeth. Like, fuck you, you leader of shit. Yeah. But the, yeah, but they're not going to like, there's no other right. plan or so. But yeah. I feel like that's like very important. Like, like, like women's yep. not in charge of our gang. What are you talking about? And I like also the fact that she's supposed to be like the sister, yet everyone else in the entire gang has a higher uh, amount given to them where she yeah. only has 10,000, where Jody has 50, uh, Tim Roth's character has 15. Like it's, Pretty amazing that even though she's supposed to be a pivotal person in this gang, she has the lowest total in terms of uh, on her head, sort of dead or alive yeah. reward. Yeah, in a lot of ways, this feels like Tarantino's remake of Twelve Angry Men, but replacing one of the men with a woman, as all these people ang- uh, argue about injustice while continually and obliviously shitting on the one woman in the room. Like yeah. it just it says so much. Uh, and also, one other line I love that I just want to mention is. Um, Another little line from this movie that could almost be taken as like a soundbite for the current times, but that feels right at home, you know, while we're watching this, is when I believe Major Warren says it, when he says something like, I don't know if it's him saying it or if it's Chris Mannix saying it about black people, but he says something like, uh, white people don't feel at ease unless black people are uh, disarmed or, mm-hmm. or, no, no, unless, yeah, unless they're disarming or something like that. And it's like the little lines like that that, crop up time and time again throughout this whole movie that just make it just feel uncomfortably uh, t- hits too close to home to what we're going through right now. Yeah. 
I did. I did. I, I don't remember exactly what the line. It was something to do with residents of South Carolina. But I did read that Quinn Tarantino went out of his, out of his way to cut a line out of this film because mm. of an event that happened, which is very much unlike him, at least for it to come out. But he said there was something involving an event that happened in South Carolina last year, mm-hmm. and it was very close to a line that was uttered by Chris Maddox in the film, and he went out of his way to cut that line out of the film. And yeah. I think that's, as much as it's very unlike him, yeah, I do I, think... it's totally warranted. Right, no, and it's warranted, and I do think that's further proof that he can be a little too liberal in certain places with certain respects, but I do think it's all in the surface of... Uh, that thank God we have Tarantino because nobody else is making these movies that even if you don't like the movie, like what don't you like about it? And if you don't like this about it, then okay. If you don't like it in the movie, let's talk about it. Exactly. And do do, do you see it going on today? Do you not like, if you can't stand in a movie, then why do you let it happen here? You know? And I just like that he creates these movies. Uh, I, I, I just feel like somebody like him could have so easily rested on his laurels after a movie like Pulp Fiction. I mean, like, where do you go from there? And yet he continually, in this last, like, stretch of these historical revision films almost, uh, he's continually, I would say, pushed out of his own comfort zone while staying so truly Tarantino. Like, nobody else would make these movies. So I, I just love that he keeps evolving, even if his films aren't necessarily... Obviously, we didn't all like this as much as Django, but that he's not uh, trying to make the same film over and over again. So... Very good. Well, we want to go to ratings here. And, sure. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and start with Toussaint, like he started with our uh, review. Okay. Um, yeah, I've been hovering around, like, two ratings uh, so far, like, since I've watched the film, even throughout, like, watching, like, and, and participating in, in this entire conversation. Like, there's a lot of components that I really enjoy about this film, and there are some other ones that I just – that don't really sit that well with me, like um, – just the excessive like like use of the n word. It's like I, I know that's that's that I can't I can't have that be a a a, a a stickler for for a Tarantino film. I know what I'm going into. Like I've already seen I've already seen Pulp Fiction. I've already seen Tarantino say it in my fucking face. Um, I can't I can't get mad about it anymore. Um, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I think I'm gonna gonna skew towards the higher score and just give it a, a three out of five okay. i was originally like hovering around a oh. two and a half and a, and a three and a three and a five just because of the yeah. weakness of the mystery which is supposed to be the central fucking draw of this film um but and 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 obviously uh the the diminishment of michael Matson's character because like i like him a lot i, I know that he, he can't be vic vega anymore but I, I don't wish... think he can really be a Anything. main character anymore man yeah. I, I hate to disappoint you but Michael Madsen, this film's looking really? old. He's he's given like some like going in part with, like with how he looks and how old he is. Like he's actually delivered like some really good like voiceover roles before. Um, as as of recently, like he started as like a an antihero on like one of my favorite video games, like one of my favorite video game characters now. But um, yeah, I was I was a little disappointed with that going in. Um, Walt, Walton Goggins and Tim Roth were like my my breakouts for this film. So yep. yeah. Tim Roth is just, he's playing that character. And it's funny because he really has not been in that many major films. I know he played Sepp Blatter in the, like, very much uh, thought of as one of the worst films ever about uh, FIFA that came out last year. Oh, my God. Is that the one that FIFA made for themselves? Yes, yes. it oh is. Oh, my God. And Tim Roth came out immediately wow. after the film got released because someone, the first, like, 
the first time that someone asked him, Tim, uh, this film's gotten kind of you know crapped on. Why? He's like, I did it for the money. I, ca- I can't even remember doing it. I was so drunk. But nobody I, else is offering him rules. Someone offered me a million dollars, and I said, you know what? I don't have anything else going him. on. Yeah. yeah, whatever. You got to do what you got to do, man. Yeah. But it, yeah, he's not been in a lot of high-profile. I mean, the last time I remember him majorly being is something when he was the villain in The Incredible Hulk, the Edward Norton film. I think the last thing that I really knew him as was the uh he, he had a show where he was the main character called lie to me which okay. lasted for two or three seasons i think two but he was like a house-esque uh oh okay investigator not medical but he was an asshole who read people that i could see that um <laughs> and he was very good at it but it seemed like he was taking that because you know nobody else was offering him i feel like he's he's great i mean he yeah. and and you mentioned it when we saw it the first time nick that this was the christoph waltz like role that this was probably made for him, and he was like, "You know what? I've pretty much already been typecast into that for my yes. rest of my career, so I'm going to take a pass." And this I'm time. so glad that a Tim Roth did it, and not Christoph Waltz, but just in general that Christoph Waltz didn't do it because it felt that like, especially when you have, I would say, Samuel L. Jackson in a character that already is similar to Django because it was originally the idea was incepted as a Django side story, whether it was going to be a sequel or a comic book, I don't know because yeah. he said he had so many ideas, but then he rewrote it as his own separate that having like Samuel L. Jackson say I'm sure I don't know alongside as a Django type archetype alongside you know Christoph Waltz doing his Christoph Waltz thing would have been just too much of the same thing yeah, yeah and, and Tim Roth is great here he is things are about to get cozy in Mitty's haberdashery tonight <laughs> yeah when he does his little like hand thing where he's like twinkling his fingers like that is so Christoph Waltz right there also he, he takes off his gloves and puts them on like yeah. periodically <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting because one of the things about the Tamagoo's got a secret uh, is that the person who's poisoned it has a glove so it's kind of like he always does put his glove back on which the red hair puts him back on the table yeah, it was either so, him or Joe Gage, yeah. but anyway. um, and I just want to think that it was Joe Gage because Walton Goggins <laughs> yeah. thinks it's fucking him. knew it, and he ends up being the one who shoots him, which had yeah. to, had to be who what happened. Not so. to mention, I, I want to think it was him too, but whether it was or it wasn't, I do love the way that Michael Madsen, even if he didn't get much to do, but the delivery of that, okay, fine, it was me, like it's so half-assed that you can't tell if it's he's just lying because he's so sick of it, or if he's just so fucking fed up with all this shit that he just decided. To just go with it. Speaking of uh, the the rare Michael Madsen moments, the the other small line delivery that I liked, other than his great scene out uh, walking through the snow looking for the last remaining uh, survivor, uh, involves after they take they disarm him and take his weapon, and he just like kind of creepily turns around and goes pretty sneaky. I don't know why. I just thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, so my feelings on this film, I I feel like I really did genuinely enjoy it. Like I, I think this is a really good film. Um, this is not as good as Tarantino's great films for me. He's got an upper echelon of films which involve uh, my four favorites, which are Pulp Fiction, Django, Inglorious Bastards, and Reservoir Dogs. And this is just below where that is. Is I feel like. The narrative here is not quite as strong as some of his other better films that I like more. And there are times when I feel like some of the language is a little bit more out of place because of that. It it it, it isn't delivered in the context as well as in some of his other films where I noticed the language, obviously, but it didn't seem as out of place to me. Uh, that being said, a lot of the characters in this film, as in almost every other Tar- Tarantino films, are is written are written so well, uh, and they deliver so many great lines and have so many like terrific memorable moments. And even here, and I, I don't necessarily think this has been like our Big Lebowski episode where we just 
pretty much went through and talked about every moment that we liked. But if you really think about where we start with this review, where we're giving our general thoughts and for where we are now, we've mentioned so many different parts of this film that we liked. And even Tucson having just one viewing mentioned a lot of lines, specific lines that he remembered from the first fil- first yeah. viewing of the film. And I think that goes to how... It speaks to the strength of the writing. Yeah, and, and how really well done this film was, both on a acting level and on a writing level. And this film is just absolutely gorgeous, as almost every Tarantino film is. Robert Richardson is just doing a great job, as per usual, delivering lovely cinematography and a great score and great musical choices behind it. Just an overall really good film, and uh, I'll be buying it when it comes out on uh, Blu-ray, and I'll be watching it again. And um, when I first saw it, I wasn't sure if I was going to definitely do that, but now I can say that I am a fan of The Hateful Eight, and I would recommend uh, people go see it because it is a really good film that I think you need multiple viewings to genuinely appreciate. So The Hateful Eight, I really liked it, and I will give it a three and a half out of five. Moving on to Nick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I uh, couldn't tell. I definitely loved it. I... Um, I would say, for me, it's just on the cuffs of being one of my all-time favorite Tarantino films. Like, it doesn't quite make that leap, but it is so close to it that I just genuinely, even worse than all, love it for what it is. I think, to summarize kind of how I feel about this movie in general, I'll go back to one little detail, which was my favorite shot in the movie comes when Bob and uh, Major Warren are in the barn, and... That's one of the striking use of the 70 millimeter format, where when they're in the barn, we see the snow kind of trickle in through the barn uh, into this enclosed space that we don't really get to see when they're in the actual whatever, because I'm sure there are, you know, missing boards and whatnot up there. So the snow is coming through, and as these two outsiders, both literally and uh, de- denominationally, or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. it's a Mexican and a, a black person talking, like, like th- as the two of them are talking, as the snow comes down and they're surrounded by white, mm-hmm. the- these are the two minorities, so to speak, um, and I just love how, the- the- for this one conversation, they're both like these kind of, I wouldn't say fully realized human beings, but they're-, they're more than just who they are, and they're also connected by their differences, and if you want to call it hatred, you know, you can call it that as well, and then it just jump cut to a shot that's actually in the program where they become black outlines on, on a on a very white background where like th- that's that's the punchline almost at the end of the day that but they're still just these hollow figures that nobody will let into you know the I don't know the center ring to you know f- become a fully they're, they're left out in the they're left yes. out in the barn to do yes. the shit like, work. This is the other yeah. flip side of the coin is like, but look at their place here and whatnot. And just that little like storytelling in this micro moment of the movie is, speaks to what I think I do love about the movie and what I'll go back to because I agree that the, the mystery is weak or whatever. But all the things, some of these lines, some of these camera angles or whatever just completely worked for me in a way where I really want to unpack this movie and unpack the way people are talking about this movie. It reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Starship Troopers, because I can understand why somebody would watch that and say that was really stupid because you know like it was just a like it was not realized that the way they talk in that movie mm-hmm. is not just fantasy or sci-fi it's actually scarily just like the way they talk in this movie is not just historical you know uh, not accuracy because I don't even think Tarantino is trying to be accurate but historical uh, placement and whatever but like we're scarily more closer to fiction than we are to fact when we when we watch representation in movie. And yeah, I, and, I, and that's that's what I loved about it. So, 
Uh, were you going to say something? You were, you were talking about, like, uh, especially with the, that, that favorite scene, like the use of, like, white as a negative space. <laughs> yes. And it also referred back to another scene that I really much enjoyed, which was the uh, the Haberdashery Massacre, where Madsen's character, even though I didn't like the whole of him, like, I really enjoyed his scene when he's, like, stalking the guy, like, to the other side of the haberdashery like yeah. he's hiding in, in the uh the the woodshed yeah the scene i was referring yes. to earlier yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. when when basically like the mountains are just kind of like totally pushed apart and all you see is just like white and you see yes. the shit house and everything else i thought yep. that was awesome yeah i i thought it i'm completely with you that like the use of white in the snow and, and, the, and the negative space of these of these framings are both just looks gorgeous. I mean, you know, when you look at the outline, or whatever, but also has a pretty sinister. It adds to that almost hateful. You know, I mean, one of the chapters is called "Black Man, White Hell." You yeah, know what I mean? Last, like, yeah. so I, I I love how this all just, in my opinion, all works together from the acting to the whatever, and creates something that's both something that disturbs me and yet something that I just will keep thinking about day after day for a while now. So I give it. Four out of five stars with basically with the knowledge that I might even like it more the next time I see it. It's just right now it's resting at that level, and I absolutely adored it. So. Okay. Right on. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, that was our review of The Hateful Eight. If you uh, would like to give your opinions on it, you can always send that on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show. But you don't need to watch Hateful 1 through 7 to understand <laughs> this one, just oh, so people know. You are such a son if, of a bitch. Uh, what's his name from uh, the, the Fast and Furious? The, the, like, who, who directed the, the Fast oh, and Furious? Oh, that... Wait, what? Justin Lin. Yeah? Yeah, Justin Lin's going to come back for the Hateful Nine. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Okay. Um, I was going to say <laughs> what I was going to say about this film, and uh, something that it shares a little bit of with our next film that we're going to do on our next episode, is that uh, these both were had some sort of difficult shoots because they were trying to find the exact weather that they were looking for, and they also too used a lot of uh, not not using made up effects like when you're seeing the mountains in hateful eight you're seeing the mountains like that's real and natural lighting and all right that. and uh the, our next film also used a lot of that as well and had a in addition to having a very difficult shoot had for, from what i've gathered one of the most like unreal shoots ever in terms of people saying if they had to do it again they would have not signed up for this film yeah and that is the uh the last 2015 film we'll be reviewing on this uh, uh podcast which is alejandro gonzalez i never pronounce his last name Inarito? right yeah what was that again Inarito? yeah there you go i think i'll just Inarito? let you say it. i'll just let you say it from now on Inarito? Inarito? you got it where you go man uh his film the revenant which um is i'm not even gonna lie the film i've been looking forward to the most uh, this entire year uh, and it's a, the film that stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy and I am just fucking excited for it so yeah. we're going to do that uh, episode uh, this coming week and uh, I'm guessing we'll all have some sort of thoughts on the film we'll have something to say but um, I'm, I'm guessing some of us will like it and some of us not so much but we, we will see <laughs> we we will see we will we, we. we, we will also see if uh Amanda Lubeski gets the uh the trifecta and goes for the three-peat in terms of the That's... best cinematography in in uh the Oscars this year his involvement is the only person's involvement <laughs> in this movie that's a draw for me because okay. I, even though I did like Birdman I don't I'm not sold on Inuritu uh just yet and I've never been big on Leo or Tom Hardy okay I I, I don't mind them but but we'll, but I but the fact that I heard that Lubeski shot all of this using only natural lighting, which seems impossible considering some of the 
things that I hear is in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, and just with incredibly wide landscapes. I, I am excited to see that part. Is is there anybody in in Hollywood? And we just talked about Robert Richardson, who's a terrific cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Is 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 Lubeski playing in a, in a different game right now than everybody else I in think Hollywood? So. I, yeah. um, I, there are so many people that certainly are great and completely, I would say, like consistently great. But I don't think there's any cinematographer that I would say is essentially pushing themselves every time they make a new movie to like continue to up the ante, so to speak. Like Robert or Robert Roger Deakins and um, Hoyt Van Hoytema do great work and consistently great work but they also all seem to be cut from the same great cloth so to mm-hmm. speak whereas like the man that made the or shot the bird cage is now which had a long take opening uh, shot where the camera is going over and it's not computerized which is kind of rare back then but mm-hmm. for a comedy where uh, you know the the camera is going over the beach into the actual club all the way through is also the same man that made that sequence and chosen a men with the cars and you know like and now using the you know birdman all in one take or whatever like the fact that he continues to draw from what he does best but keeps up in the ante I, no i don't think there's anybody better than him right now i would agree with that and i honestly think it's going to be an upset if he ends up losing this year because even though i think his best work is uh the film that he didn't win for which was terrence malick's the tree of, tree life, of life that was fantastic which was beautiful even every if you don't like the... shot was a like with a picture to put on your wall like it's right. insane and his work in this film at least what i've seen from the trailer what i've heard from people too uh is certainly going to be he will be the front runner this year for uh best cinematography because it just looks gorgeous and i don't really think there's an argument against that. But if you want to hear about that, you can listen to our our next episode here on Film Tank, uh, as it'll be the last uh, 2015 film we review, and we move in then into the new year, uh, coming up uh, in later in January and into the February and the rest of the year. The yeah. February, wow. The, the February. February. Into the February, wow. What a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so from Nick Cheney uh, to Sat Egan, myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Film Tank, and we will catch up with you next time. Au revoir. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.